get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. The season numbers for Adam Wainwright are not what he had hoped or anyone in Cardinals Nation had. But if you push those aside, Brad, you know that historically this man has been dominant against the Pirates. And a swing and a miss. Wainwright takes care of McCutcheon. Big sequence there. There's the third strikeout. And there it was down in the dirt. And it is going to result in a run. And the pitch. Swung on. Line toward the right field wall into the corner. It'll bang off of there. That'll play to pair. Reynolds in at second base with a two-out, two-run double. And the Pirates have a four-to-one lead over the Cardinals and Adam Wainwright. Here's McCutcheon. Lined out and struck out swinging against Adam Wainwright. And a drive to left field by Andrew McCutcheon. How about this? Andrew McCutcheon homers off Adam Wainwright. What a moment. Makes it 6-1. to one. And Oliver Marmel is on his way out as Waino's gotten to 70 pitches in this game. But that's the last one he's going to throw tonight. It looked really good. And then the, the Revis at bat got extended there. The ground ball we didn't get an out on. And then it, it unraveled pretty quickly. Um, Reynolds got him and then left the pitch down the middle to uh, McCutcheon. All the damage happened pretty quickly. But prior to that, I thought he was doing a really nice job. Oh, it looked so good, so long for Adam Wainwright last night. Until it didn't, of course. And then in the fifth inning, everything went awry once again. Alongside T-Bone and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kiley. An Adam Wainwright loss once again last night. Uh, he's not able to get to 199. T-Bone, the, the line's not going to show it. If you didn't watch last night, I don't blame you. Cardiff Pirates, late August game. It's a battle aren't for meaningful. fourth place. I get it. I understand it. So if you just look at the box score and you say to yourself, okay, so another Adam Wainwright performance that was more of the same. Seven hits, six earned runs, struck out just three, didn't even get you through five. The line doesn't look great. Know this if you didn't watch. It was better than the line suggests. That was a competitive outing by Adam Wainwright last night. And then in the fifth inning, everything blew up once again. And T-Bone, this is the thing that we are starting to see, really we've seen all year, as a trend for the Cardinals. When things go poorly, and this is where the comparison really comes in with the St. Louis Blues, they snowball to the nth degree. They can't seem to put an end to the bleeding. Like, they get a slight paper cut, and then it becomes a gaping open wound for them that they need surgery for immediately. And it's strange how it happens. Last night, you get into the fifth inning. It's like, all right, a single. Infield single that easily could have been an error. A bunt single to third. Ground out the scores a run. And then, boom, double and a homer, and it's over. And that was the end of the game. I mean, technically, they still played another four innings, but the game was over at that point in time. We didn't have to play those four innings. We 
it was all formality. So the biggest issue that this team has to correct, and it's not going to happen in season, but over the offseason, they got to prevent that stuff from happening, man. You got to find a way. Instead of giving up five runs in that fifth inning, can you get out of there by just giving up two or three to keep that game close enough to where it's still competitive and your offense feels like it has a fighting chance. By the time you got to that sixth inning, everybody and their mother knew that the Cardinals were losing that one last night in Pittsburgh. Yeah, and again, I think you're right on. Wayno's outing, I thought his stuff was better and he looked competitive through that outing. But when you look at the Cardinals' season as a whole, I bet 50% of their losses you can look at one inning and go, that was a blow-up inning, that was a blow-up inning, that was a blow-up inning. That just snowballed on them. And it can be one play, whether it be an air that happens in the field, it could be a play where someone doesn't get to a ball, or last night where it starts where it is a walk where they didn't like the call, they didn't get a strike that they were looking for. But that stuff can't happen if you're going to be a winning ball club. And that's the stuff, like, to your point, there's no way for them probably to really address this now in this season based on the roster that they're throwing out there. But it's something they're going to have to figure out what went wrong and how can they fix that going into next season. Because if you're going to continue to have snowball innings like this, even if you add starting pitching next year, you're not going to have a fighting chance against a lot of teams if you're going to allow five runs in an inning in which it just snowballs on you. So, yeah, you're right. They they have a lot of similarities to the Blues. This is probably the number one thing where if it, one thing goes wrong, it just snowballs on them, and I don't know what the correction's going to be to do that, but th- this is the kind of stuff that you look at and you go, this is what losing teams do, is they allow one inning to get away from them. It's starting to look like bad baseball, too, uh, because, like, it's one thing to lose. It's another thing to just look sloppy, and whether it's the at-bats, the defense, the base running, whatever— There are moments over the last week or so where it's looked sloppy for the Cardinals. It's looked like they need Brendan Donovan out there. Like, he's not a magic elixir that's going to fix everything that's going awry with this team. Don't get me wrong. And if one guy is the thing that ends up fixing you, then you probably are relying way too much on that one guy. But the stuff that Brendan Donovan does really well, the busting it to first on any ground ball, the first to third, like the little things that we have appreciated about his game over the last two years, the Cardinals seem to just not have any of that going on with them right now. And when you watch them on a night in night out basis, it's hard to do. And so you go into Pittsburgh, which is a bad baseball team. You shouldn't be losing these games the way that you are, where you've got Tommy Edmond making a weird play at second base last night. And then in left fields, I don't want to be too critical of it because I think it was more of a baseball play than it was a him dogging at play. But because of his history, it makes me question if it was a him dogging at play. Do you see Tyler O'Neill kind of let up on that foul ball into left field in the fifth inning (laughs) yesterday? Baseball play. We don't want to catch that. Then a run maybe scores and your hope is you get out of the inning. Maybe double play ball. Maybe. Bottom of the fifth inning, bases are loaded, one out, bays at the plate. Last two runners have reached on an infield single, quote-unquote, really an error, and a bunt. Bays at the plate. It's a 1-1 count to set anybody up that didn't watch the game last night. That's kind of the situation we're in. Bottom of the fifth, one out, bases loaded. There was a foul ball that went into left field. I think Tyler O'Neill, if he was actually going for it, could have gotten there. And it was pretty damn shallow, and he's got a really good arm in left field. I don't think the runner was going to tag up. And even if he did, I think there could have been a play potentially at home if Tyler O'Neill decided to go for it. He didn't. He just kind of let it go. And then, of course, we know what happened after that in the rest of the inning. 
again, could have been a baseball play. Could have been what T-Bone just said, where he's going to let it drop because they want to try to potentially get out of the inning with a double play afterwards. All right, fine. Everything in Tyler O'Neill's history makes me question that, though. And that's what's tough about watching this team right now is when I'm watching Tyler O'Neill, I'm just assuming the worst. And maybe that's a me problem, but I think it's also a Cardinals problem that that continues to be something that we have to watch on a night in night out basis. I, I think you're right on because I think there's a lot of times where I see a ground ball from O'Neill or a fly ball to left. I'm going, okay, is he going 100% on this one? Is is he is he not dogged it anymore? But to your point. Our text line's with me, by the way. Are they? Yes. Oh, come on. No. 314-636-618-573. Oh, there's like 20 of them that you're going to have to call out if you think that he didn't pull up on that I, play. I think that was a baseball play because I've seen outfielders do that before where they let the ball f- drop in foul territory so there's no Tommy chance. If was Edmond or if it was Lars Newtbar, Dylan Carr, literally any other outfielder, if it was Alec Burleson, I would totally agree with you that they probably pulled up on that play. Tyler O'Neill being in that spot and letting that ball drop the way that it did, it absolutely, my first reaction was, God bless it. This bleeping guy did it again where he dogged it on a play. And I, now that people are agreeing with me, I, I, I think I'm mad at him. I think oh, I'm took the text line to convince you to be I, mad at him? I just didn't want to crush him if it was something where I misinterpreted yeah, what you. took place. But now that I've got my army behind me in agreement, I think I'm mad at Tyler O'Neill again. Yeah, you should have heard the expletives in the office text line. Whoo, BK was fired up. Look, I'm not, again, I... I th- the problem is not so much of whether or not he was dogging it on that player. He was playing the baseball move. It is to your point of the fact that, matter that you have to question it. You shouldn't have a player that I have to question whether or not he's dogging it or not. And the fact that it pops up in the back of my mind on a guy that the Cardinals continue to say, he's getting opportunity, he's getting opportunity, he's getting opportunity. Oh, and we've seen him play at an MVP caliber level. That's the whole epitome of the issues for the St. Louis Cardinals, or at least the beginning of the issues for the Cardinals, plus their terrible fundamental baseball that we've seen recently. So, yes, I can understand where you can come to the conclusion of, yeah, he was probably dogging it. Because I think it's totally fair to assume he was dogging it, but I just (laughs) assume it's a baseball smart play. I guess I'm giving O'Neill too much benefit of the doubt. So, the result is the Cardinals are now 0-5 in Pittsburgh so far this season. It's a tough place to play. 0-5 in Pittsburgh, man. It's a really good team. The Cardinals came into the season 26 and 7 in Pittsburgh from 2019 to 2022. So over the last four seasons, they won three out of every four games that they played in Pittsburgh. This year, they haven't won a single game in Pittsburgh. It will be, if they lose today, the first time that the Cardinals have gone over in Pittsburgh since 1998. And if you want to go back a little bit further, it would be the first time that they've done it going back beyond 1998 since 1907. Tanner, I am so sick of referencing the 1907 and 1908 St. Louis Cardinals this year. I am sick of it. Every hundred years, the Cardinals end up being one of the worst teams in baseball, and I am not having it anymore. I am sick of referencing that team. I have learned way too much about the 1907 and 1908 rosters, and I would assume there was probably somebody on that roster that reminded a lot of people if they're still around in our listening audience of Tyler O'Neill, where they were dogging it in 1907 and they're dogging it again in 2023. Tyler O'Neill is the problem for this team right now. All right, coming up the in about 15 problem. minutes, one of many, we're getting into some NFL quick hitters. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. If you guys want to get involved in the show, you can always watch us as well on YouTube at 101 ESPN STL. Coming up next, though, 
Somebody tweeted me last night, and I thought it was interesting. Said, BK, how long of a rebuild are the Cardinals about to go into? Can they reasonably get this thing turned around in one offseason? It's a fair question to ask. I looked into it last night to try to find what is the comparison? Who are the teams that have done previously in recent baseball memory what the Cardinals are trying to accomplish this offseason? I'll let you know what I found coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson and Grand Francis. I'm Brandon Kylie. Alex out this week having a great vacation up in Michigan. We haven't heard from him a single time in our text yeah. thread, so I'm going to assume he's having a good time. He'll be back in next week with uh, us. How angry do you think he is, by the way, that we actually continue to text the group thread, oh, not just ourselves? Be more angry. He yeah. told me, let's let's talk about this for a second. We'll get into well, the Cardinals, the what their model is, how they can get back to contention, and why uh, they can actually point back to a divisional rival as the comparison for how they can get into contention next year. We'll do that here in just a second. Alex told us, this was right before I had uh, baby Luca, who's just absolutely the best baby in the world, by the way. Um, he told me beforehand, he's like, yeah, you're going to see you're going to see life changes a whole lot. He's right. Life has changed a lot. There are a lot of things that I used to be able to do that they just don't take on the same priority as they uh, they once did. One thing that hasn't changed, though, is my ability to continue to talk to people. Like, yeah. I do still have that in my bag. My, my, my golf bag where I used to have a full set of clubs, like, there's a whole lot of those that have been ripped right out, right? The ability to text back when needed that that has not been one of the golf clubs that has been ripped out of my bag still have that one. you're definitely a little slower on it i can tell totally fair but yeah you, you haven't lost your driver like ferrario <laughs> clearly has because ferrario is out here like driving with a three yeah, wood yeah mate a putter let's just be honest <laughs> he's trying to drive cover 300 yards with his putter because he never responds to anything in the group chat, whether he's working, whether he's at home with the girls, yeah. or honestly, even if, even if I'm at the Blues game with him and send him a text, he does not respond. He's terrible. He's like my grandparents. It's pretty bad. All right, I'm um, glad I got that off my chest. I, I do want to talk to you, by the way, about texting with, with dads. Um, we'll do that in the junk drawer today. Well, um, <laughs> it's, it's an amazing thing. I think everybody in our audience will be able to relate. So how long is this going to take for the Cardinals to get back to being good? Because right now, it sure does look bad. They're on pace. T-Bone, you sent a real text last night. Do you think the Cardinals can lose 100 games this season? And you were serious. Like, you weren't saying, like, worst-case scenario. Like, you believe that it is at least possible. They would have to lose, I guess, like, 28 of their 35 remaining games to lose 100 games this season. With the fourth-toughest schedule left in baseball. (laughs) It's at least possible. I, I can't completely rule it out. They're a bad baseball team. And getting from losing 95-plus games in a season to winning 95 or more games in the season is a massive, massive undertaking. And that's what the Cardinals are going to attempt to do this offseason. So somebody tweeted me yesterday. It was a fair question. How long is this going to take? Is it going to be a multi-year rebuild that the Cardinals are about to go into, or can they reasonably get back to contention next year? So I looked it up. Who are the teams over the last decade? That went from winning fewer than 80 games in one season to winning more than 95 games in the following year. 
So losing team into not just like a contender, but one of the better teams in the sport the following year. I found seven of them, which is a a pretty decent size, sample size, considering this is just over the last decade. It's basically one a year or so because 2020 doesn't count in this. So the 2013 Red Sox, they won 69 games a year prior and then won 97 games. The 2014 Angels, they went from 78 to 98 wins in one season. The 2018 A's went from 75 wins to 97 wins. The 2019 Twins, who I have no recollection of whatsoever, went from 78 wins to winning 101 games. The same thing happened last year with the Mets, where they went from 77 to 101. The Rangers are on pace this year to join this list, going from 68 to 95 wins. So those are most of the teams that have done it. The one team that I left out, I think is maybe the best comparison for where the Cardinals are at right now. And it's the 2014-15 Cubs. In 2014, the Cubs won 73 games. That offseason, this is the one part that I don't think that the Cardinals are going to follow. They could do this with the same guy, though. They fired their manager. They then go out and get Joe Madden. They sign Lester. They re-sign Hamill after trading him at the deadline. They sign Ross, who's now their manager, of course. They trade for Miguel Montero. They want a defensive catcher behind the plate. They bring in Dexter Fowler. They have Addison Russell, Chris Bryant, Jorge Soler, Chris, uh, Kyle Schwarber all becoming regulars in that 2015 season. And boom, we know what happens from there. They become not a dynasty, but the best team in the NL Central for a few years with that core of players that I just mentioned. They go from 73 wins to 97 wins overnight. I was listening to a podcast yesterday with Jed Hoyer. He was on with the Starkville podcast on the Athletic Baseball uh, podcast. And... He told a story about watching the 2013 Cardinals and how he then wondered how far away are we? Because it looks kind of similar to what the Cardinals are trying to approach right now. Here's Jed Hoyer telling the story. I think it applies. Think about the Cardinals while you're listening to this. I always tell the story of being in St. Louis um, and I was sitting there during a day game in, in 2013. It was like in late April, early May. I'm staring out of the field. They had been 11. They won the World Series. I think 12, they lost in the LCS. 13, they lost in the World Series. So the team I was watching ended up losing to the Red Sox that year in the World Series. I remember watching the game and thinking, like, how on earth are we going to compete with this team anytime <laughs> soon? I mean, they're just a bunch of, you know, prime-aged great players. You know, Matt Holiday and Yachty. And they had, back then, they had Johnny Peralta and they had John Jay. And said just a really good team all across the field. I'm thinking, like, we're not close to this right now you know two years later we beat them in the lcs (laughs) it was a great learning experience for me in the sense of that these things happen quickly when you get a critical mass of talent i think that's where the cardinals are at right now i think they're getting if they're not there already they're getting very close to it where the cubs had to go through pain for five years to be able to build the core that they eventually won with to be able to draft really highly to get Chris Bryant and Kyle Schwarber and to be able to make the trades that they were able to acquire guys like Addison Russell and uh, going out and getting somebody like a Dexter Fowler. When you were able to build around that core group of players, all they had to do was drop a couple of pitchers in and it's like, okay, this is ready made. Let's go now. Let's go win. The Cardinals didn't have to go through as much pain, but they did build that core group of position players similar to what the Cubs had in 2015. You look around the diamond right now, man. Look at all of the guys that they have developed internally and who they're building around right now. 
Look at shortstop, Mason Wynn. You look at second base, normally when he's healthy, Nolan Gorman. In the outfield, you look who they've got out there. Lars Newtbar, Dylan Carlson, maybe. Tommy Edmond, maybe. Jordan Walker, definitely. You look around the diamond at the guys that they are building around. It looks very similarly to that Cubs team. The difference is right now, the Cardinals do not have the pitching. That was the last thing that the Cubs went out and added before being a legitimate contender for the next four to five years. That's what the Cardinals have to go out and do this offseason. They've got to find their John Lester that they can build around. They've got to go out there, and it's not necessarily an acquisition for the Cubs, but the Cubs ended up in 2015 having one of the better middle rotation starters in Kyle Hendricks. Now, they developed him internally. The Cardinals need to find the equivalent to Kyle Hendricks. Maybe it's somebody internal. Maybe it's somebody you trade for. Maybe it's somebody you sign. I don't really care how you get it. But you got to find your Kyle Hendricks that ended up coming up and changing the complexion of the Cubs rotation in 2015. Lester, Hendricks, go get your Jason Hamill, whether it's re-signing somebody like a Jordan Montgomery and going to market to find your equivalent. Those are the three things that the Cubs did that offseason that worked for them to make them into a contender. That's what the Cardinals have to go do. So there is one team that I think you can immediately point to that is the comparison for what the Cardinals are trying to accomplish. Yeah, and I like the comparison because I think you're right on. They've got the core in terms of the position players. Now it is just figuring out what you're going to do in the rotation. And I I think with a good offseason, you can be back into the conversation of a team that could go to from losing 95 to winning 90 to 95 games next year. It's about identifying the talents signing a top-end starter. I think their Kyle Hendricks, at least internally, is maybe Miles Michaelis. That might be who their their guy is. So now you got to go find your John Lester, your Jake Arrieta, the guys that are going to be the top of that rotation, and then you got to figure out who the Jason Hamill is. That's the number four. And maybe that is bringing Montgomery back, but I think he would fit more as the three for you or two sure. for you. But I, that's, that's the idea that you need to be looking at this offseason because they've got the offensive core. We saw when they were healthy before Gorman, Newbar went on the IL, even while Donovan was out, this team was definitely slugging. They were putting up runs. Now that those guys are out, the offense has gone cold, of course. But the pitching is the thing that just continues to lack behind. And I, I do believe in a offseason, you can fix that. Now, the one thing that I would say that they can't overlook in this is the bullpen. The bullpen is the one spot that I feel like I'm getting the the spidey sense of that they're going to overlook this offseason and say, hey, look, we added it to this rotation. This is going to be fine. You got to do both. You got to supplement the bullpen as well because when you think back to those Cubs teams, they had pretty good pieces in that bullpen as well. You had a Pedro Strope, you had a Hector Rondon that was the closer. Uh, Justin Graham was was really good that year with a one nine nine ERA. Like it wasn't just the rotation too, though that is the number one spot the Cardinals need to invest in this offseason. They also got to find a way to retool their bullpen on the fly as well. And you think about those names that you just mentioned. It's not as if they went out and paid a bunch of money to be able no. to get those guys. Pedro Strupp, I believe, was a trade that they were able to to make. And I, th- I think it was kind of a – he was the secondary piece of it, if I'm remembering correctly. And so they end up getting him, and he becomes one of the more important pieces coming out of that bullpen in the Cubs run. The other thing they did, man, you think about it, when they went to the World Series, Aroldis Chapman was the piece that ended up kind of getting them over the top. Now, we know there was a big meltdown, but – uh, Chapman, they don't make the World Series and win it, if not for him, in my opinion. The Cardinals need to find their big move that makes them squeamish as well. Like They've got the pieces to be able to go make that move the way that the Cubs did to get Aroldis Chapman by giving up a potential future shortstop for them. The way that the Royals did in 2013 when they traded the minor league player of the year, a top five prospect in all of baseball, in Will Myers, For James Shields and Wade Davis, you look back at these teams and you kind of reverse 
construct the rosters, a lot of them had to make one move at some point that led to them saying, oh boy, this is our fork in the road moment. Either this is going to work out for us and we're going to win something big, or this is going to go poorly and every one of us is getting fired. That's the move that the Cardinals need this offseason. It sounds scary because it is terrifying, but that's what it's going to take for them to be able to go out and get the pitcher that they crave. That's the one thing they're missing. And to get it, you're probably going to have to give up some kind of cost-controlled hitting, and it's going to make every single one of us squeamish whenever it happens. And it's really the move that, even dating back to that time frame that we're talking about when the Cardinals were the team that the Cubs looked at and went, oh, man, how are we going to beat them? It's the one move the Cardinals have been unwilling to make for years. It's not like we're just talking about a trend that's been going on for two years. This is like 10 years under the John Mosellock era that they haven't been willing when they were winning to make that big splash. Now, look, there were some years like 22 or 21 where they had, they, they didn't make sense to go make that move where it was, okay, we got to go get a half. We got to go get a less. We just got to kind of put this thing together with bubble gum. But there are there are times, and I think this is their time this offseason, to make that puke point trade. It's going to feel like an all-in move, but I don't think that's necessarily what it is. I think it's a move that is necessary to get you back into just the conversation of contention. The all-in move would be something that you're going to be talking about at the deadline. Yeah. This is one of those trades, to your point, and I've been saying this. I thought they were going to do this at the deadline, potentially. It is that puke point move where it is, okay, I'm either getting fired or I'm going to live on in folklore because I just made an incredible trade that helps us get back to the promised land. Somebody from the 314 asks a fair question. Um, I was hoping that we wouldn't get here, but neither here nor there. How many of those seven teams that went from losing at least 82 games to winning 95 in the next season either A, fire their manager or B, spent significantly in free agency that offseason? One of those two applied to every single one of these teams. It's just the reality. Five out of these seven teams fired their manager the year before they turned it around. Five of the seven. The other two were the Oakland A's where they had Bob Melvin, and everybody knows Bob Melvin is a really good manager, and Mike Sosha with the Angels in 2013-2014. Now, that Angels team is probably the biggest outlier out of any of these that I saw. They basically made a few moves, and somehow it all kind of clicked into place in 2014. They traded for David Freeze. Cole Calhoun had his first season. He ended up being really good for them that year. And Garrett Richards had a breakout season. And then, for whatever reason, it just all kind of turned around and it came together for them. So I can't explain that one. It's the biggest outlier. And then they got into the playoffs and it was like, oh, yeah, their rotation kind of stinks. They didn't end up being able to make it far at all. They lost in the first round, did not win a game in the postseason that year. But that's the outlier. The other teams for the vast majority either fired their manager or signed significant free agents or a combination of both, um, to be totally honest with you. That's what they ended up doing. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we'll get into questions and answers. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. But next, let's dive into some NFL quick hitters, including a player that is a perennial all-pro who has yet to show up for camp and sure seems to be threatening that he's not going to be there the first two months of the season. We'll tell you who that is next here on 101 ESPN. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 
ESPN. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. When you hear that music, you know what time it is here on BK and Ferrario. It is time for some NFL quick hitters, and we're going to start with a story that is catching me a little bit by surprise. The Kansas City Chiefs very well may end up going the first two months of the season without Chris Jones. Now, I'm still not buying it. I think this is insanity. I don't understand what his side is trying to accomplish here, but let's go through this. So Chris Jones is entering the final year of his deal with the Kansas City Chiefs. Chris Jones is one of the best defensive tackles in the NFL. You can make a pretty strong argument. Last year, he was the single best defensive tackle in the NFL. Better than Aaron Donald, because Donald just hurt. It was the first season that he showed signs of being human last year. So Chris Jones wants a new contract. That makes sense. I would expect him to get one. He's asking for $30 million per year. Chiefs, I think, want to pay him $27 to $28 million per year. Neither side's willing to budge, so we're at a stalemate. Jones has not reported to training camp. T-Bone, at this point, he's racked up nearly a million dollars in fines by not Mm -hmm. reporting to training camp. That's tough. Chris Jones is set to make $20 million in salary this upcoming season. That means he's making a little more than a million dollars every week. By NFL rule, he has to show up by week nine. Otherwise, this year does not work for him, or it does not um, vest for him, which means next year they just carry over his contract for another season. So he has to show up by week nine to the NFL season. So there's really no interest in him not playing for the Chiefs. It's just a matter of when does he show up now or does he wait until early in the season? If he doesn't show up until week nine, he's giving up $10 million this year to not play. That doesn't make any sense because you're not making that up anywhere. You're not getting that on the next deal when you're going to be 30 years old. So my firm stance on this is very simple. I think Chris Jones will show up next week to Chiefs Chiefs camp. He will play probably by week two or three, and this will be a non-story until we get to the offseason next year. But T-Bone, as you're looking at all of this, you're reading the tea leaves. What is your thought process on what's going on with Chris Jones right now? I'm kind of with you. I think he's going to show up next week or at worst case scenario, maybe sit out week one and then come back. Like I, he doesn't have any leverage. He's not going to like the chiefs aren't going to suddenly go to him and go, you know what? 30 mil a year sounds right. Yeah, let's do it. Let, let's get you back yeah, what, in camp. What does he think is changing between now and next week? Nothing. <laughs> That's the thing. It just makes no sense. And you're right. Why would he want to give up $10 million? And if you just hold out, you pull the Le'Veon Bell route where his contract was vested. The Steelers just said, oh, we're done with this. Just move yep. on. You go to free agency and prove yourself to somebody else. And it didn't work out. So I think you're right. I think he's going to report either next week Worst case scenario, maybe he sits out week one and comes back. He's not going to get a new contract, though. I I can't see the Chiefs budging. Like, he's got no leverage. The Chiefs are going to stand pat at what they offer, and if he doesn't like it, then he can just walk into the UFA next year, and maybe the Chiefs can tag him and we can go through the process again next year. I don't understand any of it. Um, If Chris Jones is just looking to get the most money possible, I mean, I guess more power to him. I never want to take money out of anybody's pocket. But this seems like a weird play. If I'm Chris Jones, I want to be on a team where I'm making plays in the postseason because at this point, he's got a real chance to be a Hall of Fame player. The best way to become that is by sticking on a contender. I'll be interested to see how this ends up going. My guess, if I was to project, I think he shows up this time next week. He ends up playing for the Chiefs by the end of the first month of the season, but shows up, doesn't have to end up missing out on any game checks. All right. Over on The Athletic, 
So we get to more theoretical as opposed to the newsy items. They had a piece that I thought was interesting, T-Bone. Would you rather be the Minnesota Vikings or the New York Giants? Taking into account all of their situations, contract-wise, quarterback, young players, coach, everything. If I just told you you could take over one franchise for the next decade, would you rather be the Giants or the Minnesota Vikings? I think I'd rather be the Vikings because though Cousins is going to need a new deal at the end of this year, if I'm not mistaken, I think I'm okay with giving Cousins that deal because I know he's at least a average quarterback and he's got weapons around him. Hawkinson, Justin Jefferson. We'll see what their rookie wide receiver in uh, Addison, if I'm not mistaken. We'll see what he looks like. Defensively, they've got some question marks on the defensive side of the ball, but they've got talent on offense. I look at the Giants. I go, my quarterback's Daniel Jones, and I just gave him a four-year deal. Now, yes, they can get out of it next year, but our identity centered around Saquon Barkley, too. Yeah, our defense is good. Who's yes, on a one-year deal? Yeah. Oh, I totally forgot about that, too. Yeah. And I like I like Brian Dable, but can he really repeat what he did last year? I, I feel like the Giants were a team that bought in on a fluke last year, and that's why I, I feel like they're going to have to probably – Maybe that's not this year. Maybe it's not next year. But in three years, really kind of start back over. It's why I'd much rather have the Minnesota side of things. I would as well. I'm right there with you. I would like to be the Minnesota Vikings and uh, as opposed to the New York Giants. Part of this also, you didn't mention it, I'll think, the division that you're playing in. Yeah. I would rather be in the NFC North where there's a lot of uncertainty moving forward than in the NFC East where I'm going to have to compete year in and year out with the Dallas Cowboys and the Philadelphia Eagles. Say what you will about Dak Prescott. He's a top at least top half of the league quarterback. Jalen Hurts is a potential top five quarterback in the league. I don't want to have to go up against that when I don't have a guy that I deem to be top half of the league. I think Daniel Jones is a bottom 10 starter most seasons when he's in the league. I, that doesn't sound interesting or fun at all to me. No. And the NFC North, look at the quarterbacks you're going up against. I like Justin Fields a lot. I have no idea if he's going to project to be a top 10 quarterback long-term. I think J- J- uh, Jared Goff, is not all that dissimilar from what the Vikings have right now in Kirk Cousins. And none of us know what Jordan Love's going to be. Might be great. Could be one of the worst quarterbacks in the league this season. So I would rather be that because of the situation as much as anything else. Final thing here, T-Bone. Yesterday, we talked about the situation that is taking place in Indianapolis with uh, Taylor, Jonathan Taylor. The new update is that apparently, now take this stuff with a grain of salt. Apparently, they're getting some really good offers for him. He is still on the PUP list, not really practicing. If you're in a fantasy draft right now and you got to decide, are you taking Jonathan Taylor? If he lasts to like the third round, is he a guy that you're targeting? How are you approaching Jonathan Taylor in your fantasy drafts right now? I'm kind of, I would stay away from him, I think. Just because, one, the uncertainty of what his situation is going to be. I think he's going to be a cult. I, I don't see him getting traded unless it's like around deadline time. The problem for me, though, is he's dealing with some kind of injury that we know. I, back injury, I think, is what it is. Like, that's not great. So I, I would stay away with away from him because of the injury concern. Not so much about the trade situation. I think everything will get worked out. I think he's going to be playing for the Colts when he's healthy and ready to go until he gets moved potentially at the deadline. But his back is such a concern for me that I want to stay away from him. And he's coming off of a uh, 
down year. A wasn't he injured last yeah. year too? I was gonna say I think he was injured last year. So I I would stay away from Jonathan Taylor. I I would have to wait further into the draft before I take him. Tell me Jonathan Taylor or this player that I'm about to mention. These running backs that I'm about to mention because these are all the guys going after him right now in your fantasy drafts. Najee Harris. I'd probably take Harris. Uh, Joe Mixon. I would take Mixon. Travis Etienne. I would take Etienne. Jameer Gibbs. I think I'd take Gibbs. Brees Hall. I would definitely take Brees Hall. Aaron Jones. I would take Aaron Jones. Kenneth Walker. I would, uh, I would take Walker, but I think it might be where I draw Miles the line. Miles Sanders? Yeah, I would rather have Taylor. Okay. I think I'd draw the line right about there. So we're like the fourth to fifth round. Late fourth, early fifth round is where you finally start taking him. You know you know where he's going right now? Third round. Top of the third. Yeah. I'm not taking Jonathan Taylor there. There's just too much uncertainty. I would rather have the wide receivers that are in that range specifically. T. Higgins, Keenan Allen, Calvin Ridley, DK Metcalf, and then we just talked about the running backs that you can get around that range. Josh Allen, Jalen Hurts are going around that area. I would rather have any of those players that I just mentioned than Jonathan Taylor at his current spot that he's going in fantasy drafts. If he drops in your draft and you can get him, you're looking at, okay, am I going to take J.K. Dobbins, Miles Sanders, Deontay Johnson, or Jonathan Taylor? I'm taking Taylor there. But prior to that, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait until we get to the fifth round. That's around the time where I really start thinking about taking Jonathan Taylor. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so, the White Sox made a move yesterday that could completely alter the Cardinals offseason plans. We'll tell you what that is in about 10 minutes. But next, questions and answers here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe. It's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. All right, let's get to questions and answers. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Let's start with this, guys. So Richie Palacios just had another good play by the St. Louis Cardinals. They're up 3 nothing in the top of the first inning. He had a ground rule double. Scored a couple on the play. T-Bone, is there something there with Richie Palacios? Do they have something with this guy? Maybe. I'm not quite sure yet, but I do like what I'm seeing. A left-handed kind of, I'd call him a slap hitter, even though he's now starting to slug, apparently. Um, and he looks comfortable out there in center field. He he looks like he's got the potential to be a fourth outfielder, I would say. Fifth outfielder. Guy that you can carry on your team, that you can start in center field when you need to give whoever the hell your everyday center fielder is a day off. And you feel comfortable with him there. I'm not saying he's a guy you're going to pinch it for anybody for. Maybe you bring him on as a pinch runner late in games. He's got decent speed. I, I think there's something there. I, I don't think he's one of those guys that I would purge from this 40-man roster as we go into the offseason. He reminds me a little bit. I said this off-air, and BK went, oh, my God, what are you doing over there? Um, it's fair. Wait till you hear this, and you I tell me what your reaction somewhat is. Someone reminds me, because he's not going to hit 300 by uh-huh. any means. He kind of reminds me of John Jay a little bit. A little bit. I'm not saying he is John Jay. He kind of reminds me of him a little bit. Left-handed, kind of slap hitter, plays solid defense in center field. I think that's fair. He's had some, I mean, really intriguing numbers in the minors. Yeah, don't look at this year in Cleveland, though. Yeah, don't look at any of his major league numbers. Those are those are not good. But in the minors, when he's been down, so 
This season in AAA for the Cardinals, he's walking 16% of the time and striking out just 10% of the time. Now, needs to be said, we're going to get into this a little bit later. Strike zone's a little wonky right now down in AAA, so maybe that's a one-off, right? Nope. Look back to 2022. Walk rate, 12%. Strikeout rate, just 20%. 2021, walk rate of 17%. Strikeout rate of 19%. He's had an OPS plus in all of those seasons of 20% above league average at every level or better. Richie Palacios is a legitimately intriguing talent. He was a third-round pick back in 2018. They viewed him as somebody that could help them down the road. And then they DFA'd him for the same reason that the Cardinals have DFA'd a million different outfielders over the years. They needed somebody that could provide something a little different than what he brought to the table. Maybe John Mosellock was able to find something, and I'm not saying he's a starter for you. I don't think he's going to be that. Can he be a fourth or fifth outfielder? Can he be a guy that you carry on the 40 man for a couple of years? And you're like, hey, we've we've got some injuries out there. Let's call up Palacios. And you know, he's going to be able to play a capable outfield. I think he could be that for the Cardinals. Yeah. And like, look, he's I don't got mind. got two more option years left. And, and I don't mind the idea of like Burleson being your DH slash fourth outfielder. But if I can just say, hey, he's our backup first baseman and our DH. And then we've got Palacios as the fourth outfielder. If he plays like he's been playing since he's been back up here, I wouldn't mind that because then he can can kind of pull Burleson away from the outfield where he's average at best. I'd say slightly below average. Get an okay arm out there, but you don't feel comfortable like I do when I look at Palacios' Roman center field right now. Having a guy that can capably play center field on the roster is pretty nice. I also think that his development could allow you a little bit more flexibility with somebody like a Tommy Edmond. Like, yeah, if they think that Tommy Edmond is going to be a trade chip for them down the road, I could totally understand giving Richie Palacios a legitimate extended run in center field the rest of the way this year. And that's probably going to change whenever Lars Nubar returns to the lineup. I understand that. But I know that the Cardinals will disagree with me and they'll say I'm crazy for this. I would play Richie Palacios down the stretch over Tyler O'Neill. I don't think you're learning anything about Tyler O'Neill. People know who he is, man. They know. You're not fooling anybody. We're building up trade value. His trade value is not going to change. So I I would play him over Tyler O'Neill because I'm more intrigued by what he could be for the Cardinals in 2024 than I am what Tyler O'Neill could now, be for this team. Who would you play in center when Newtbar gets back? Newtbar, Palacios, or, or sorry, when Newt and Gorman are back. I should add the caveat here. Edmund, Palacios, or Newtbar? Who's in center when I they're all back? I would go Edmund or Palacios. I would choose one of those two players. And the, the truth is, though, it'll probably be a combination of all of the above. Yeah, They'll probably just rotate those guys to see how it looks, find out how all three of them react when they're playing in center field. But if I had to choose one of them that I would probably most want to see, it, it probably is Edmund getting the most opportunities in center just because I would like to find out if he's capable. We know Palacios can play it. I think I have a pretty good idea of what Lars Nupar is out there. He's average to slightly below as a defender in center field. I don't know what Tommy Edmund is long-term. And you've got questions about his arm. I think those are fair questions at a minimum. Let's find out. Let's see what it looks like at over an extended stretch of 25, 30 games. All right. So we know they're going to go to Nupar. That's center. right. Yeah. All right. 314-399-9646 is the error comfort service text line for questions and answers. Guys, if the Cardinals were in contention right now, how do you think that they would utilize Adam Wainwright? Are we assuming that the rotation is what it is right now, or are we assuming, assuming that there's something different? Because as currently constructed, they would be utilizing him the exact same way. Oh. If they had everybody that they previously traded, though, 
They probably I trade to upgrade that spot. Think that Adam Wainwright would currently be on the injured list. If you want me to be honest, I don't think he would have been given that start that he got the other day to be able to rebound. I think they would have said, we, we can't keep doing this with us being in contention. So I think that's the way they would have approached it. Yeah, I, I think they probably would have traded for somebody to take his spot in the rotation. And either he's buried in the bullpen or like you said, he's on the IL. I think that's what they would have done. I, and I think they probably would have traded for like a Giolito. That's probably what my guess would be. They would have traded for a Giolito or someone of that ilk that would take Wayno's spot in the rotation. Uh, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers. Final thing here, guys, do you think that the Cardinals can build a team in the offseason that will legitimately compete to win the division or the entirety of the National League next year? Uh, I think that's going to be the goal. I think if it's not the goal, then they have failed. And this is why, like, we saw there was a few texts on the text line earlier that were saying that we were carrying water for John Mosellock. My optimism in the offseason, and I know people get frustrated and they're sick of hearing this, is that the Cardinals have never had to react to something like this. Not with this current iteration of the Cardinals front office in charge. So when I think about what they're going to do, how they will react, I assume that they are going to be highly aggressive. And if they aren't, then we will react accordingly. Because I think it's necessary for them to make big moves this offseason, unlike in previous years. Previous years, I can at least listen to the argument. We sat out of the shortstop market because we have an internal option. We sat out of the uh, Bryce Harper market because we have internal mark or internal options. I, there's at least explanations, excuses, whatever you want to call them, for why they did what they did. And even if you disagree, there's logic behind it. If they sit out of the top of the pitching market trade and or free agency this year, there is no explanation. They cannot excuse it away because that will be considered a fail by everybody. And it should be. So it it's going to come down to what they do. And then we'll we'll react accordingly. But now, yeah, I think that that will be the plan this offseason is to try to contend in the National League and certainly for the division next year. I was say, I, I don't know what the I don't know if I'm as optimistic about contend for the National League. Because I think they're going to build the team to win the NL Central and then go with the motto of get in and anything can happen. That's what I think they're going to do. Now, granted. But you got to win about 95 to be able yeah, to do that. exactly. And the Reds are coming the, the, with their pipeline. They're potentially going to spend on a starter this year. The Cubs are coming and they want to spend money. The Brewers are always seem to be good and we'll see what they do this offseason. Like, it's not like they can build just a 90 to 88 win team and win the division. No, it is going to take 95 to your point. So that, that's kind of where I would say like... To your point, yes, they have to do it. And to most credit, he said this past offseason, hey, we need a catcher. What did he do? He signed Wilson Contreras. Granted, whether he's a catcher or not, we can debate. But he did it. And what's he been saying this year? He's been saying we need three starting pitchers. And I can't see him reverting away from that. So I do expect them to be aggressive and build a team that's at least going to win the NL Central. What I do want to hear him say, and we'll ask this uh, whenever he has his end-of-season press conference because that's when he's typically pretty honest. When you say you need three starting pitchers, would one of those starting pitchers, would it be fair to say that it, they need to be able to start a game one of a playoff series for you? Because that should be the criteria that he holds himself to. And if the answer to that is yes, then we kind of know what they're going to be looking for. Coming up next, the White Sox made a big time decision yesterday. It could fit what it, the criteria of what we were just talking about. That could now be on the table. We'll talk about that and what it means for the Cardinals next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. 
you're just trying to evaluate guys, I take the I take ERAs and I take walk rates with a grain of salt, which is difficult because those are the two most telling basic stats if a pitcher is having right. a good year or not, the walk rate and the ERA. Um, but I also look at pitch profile and Hudson's a sinker ball guy, so you know that he needs to fill the zone up. Thompson, we're still figuring out what exactly his arsenal can be because it can kind of change between a reliever and a starting pitcher. So that was Katie Wu. We'll talk about that coming up here in about 20 minutes or so. But what we want to talk about here is the White Sox. They made a big decision yesterday, T-Bone. They fired their front office, more or less. The two guys that were in charge of it, uh, they're now gone. They've been sent away and to fill their place, at least for the rest of the season. They basically hired Tony La Russa. They're like, hey, <laughs> let's get good old friend TLR in here. He's going to help us make some of these decisions. Now, the White Sox have been an abomination this year. You think that the Cardinals have been bad to watch. The White Sox are brutal, man. Bad defense. They don't seem to try on the base paths. They're, they're no good at pitching. Lance Lynn was there. He was terrible. He goes to the Dodgers. Looks like one of the best pitchers in baseball again. There's been questions about the leadership inside of the clubhouse. Uh, it It's brutal, man, in every possible way. So they fire everybody. They're probably going to fire their manager at the end of the season. And it's entirely possible they just decide we're going to tear this thing down to the studs. I think the only guy that they will not have any conversations about this offseason, if I had to guess, is Luis Robert. I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole if I'm the White Sox. That is the player, kind of like for the Cardinals with Jordan Walker, that I am building around. I want that guy here for the entirety of his career. He's 26 years old. He's a borderline gold glover in the outfield, and he does everything you could possibly ask for offensively as well. That guy shouldn't be touched. Everything else, though, should be up for discussion for them right now. And that has a potential um, trickle-down effect for the Cardinals. Dylan Cease is a player that we spent a lot of time talking about this year going into the trade deadline. Dylan Cease, at one point, was considered to be a legit Cy Young type of pitcher in Major League Baseball, as recently as last year. Through 185 innings, had a 2.2 ERA. This season hasn't been as good for Dylan Cease. Same amount of walks, similar in terms of the strikeouts, but hasn't got the same batted ball luck. And now suddenly, instead of being a Cy Young candidate, he's a guy that people look at and they're like, yeah, he's a solid number two or three. T-Bone, he has the exact profile that the Cardinals should be looking for this offseason, though. He is 27 years old. He's a righty with big time stuff, a great fastball. When you think about what this offseason could look like for the White Sox, does Dylan Cease now become the headliner that you would like to see the Cardinals at? I, I think so, because I, I think when you look at Dylan Cease, one, you've got him under good club control, which is something that is important for me because, I mean, he's making 5.7 this year. He's got two more years of RB. He's probably going to make, I'd say, 9 mil, 8 yeah. to 9 mil It'll next about year. 10, let's call it 10 mil next year, 20 mil in year three yeah. of arbitration. And, like, when you look at him, you know who he kind of reminds me of in terms of just hearing walk rate? It's not as high as the pitcher I'm about to bring up. He's like the little bit lesser version of Blake Snell to where he walks the world. And if he's got his stuff and he's striking out guys, you can see what you saw in 2020. It's Jack Flaherty with a good strikeout. Yeah, rate, yeah, basically. exactly. And I would take that. I, I would take that when you're talking about a guy that finished second in the Cy Young last year. And even the year prior, his numbers were a little bit more higher. Three point nine one ERA. But he's covered 165 and two-thirds, 184 innings, and he's at 138 right now this year. He'll probably finish around the 160-170 mark this year. Yeah, I would have interest in that guy, and I would be willing to trade away a decent piece to go get him um, because he is a guy that I think 
when he's right, he can be that front-end guy for you. You've got two years of club control, and now you've made a trade, and now you only got to go out and sign two free agent starting pitchers. So, yes, I, I would have serious interest. I had interest in him in the deadline this year for the Cardinals. If I told you they want um, Gorman and Edmund in a deal for Dylan Cease, that's the deal. Gorman, Edmund, they're going to Chicago. You're getting Dylan Cease in return. So for the White Sox, we're getting what we deem to be a second baseman of the future that's going to hit 35 home runs every year, left-handed power bat, really excellent core piece for them moving forward. And now we've got Robert and Gorman in the middle of our order for future years. And we now have a starting shortstop for years to come as well with Tommy Edmund. They probably would re-sign him, honestly, long-term. Would you do that if you were in the Cardinals' shoes? Edmund and Gorman for Dylan Cease. Because I think that's the kind of package that they're probably going to be looking for. Agreed. I would definitely consider it, yes. And that stings because I think Gorman's got the highest ceiling of anybody on the roster in terms of the top trade chips, Newpar included, because he can hit 40 home runs. But he also reminds me of a guy like Schwarber where he could have a year where he hits 20. And honestly, the back issues are a little concerning. Uh, The fact that he's dealing with these at how young age that he is. And it's not like this is the first year this has been an issue. This has been a reoccurring something ever since he did something where he was lifting. Um, So, yeah, I I think I would consider it to go get Dylan Cease because I think if Cease is right, one, you're not just going to have him for two years. Your hope would be that you have him the two years and then you also lock him up to a contract extension and he can be the guy that leads the front end of the rotation for probably seven years to come. The other thing about this is if you do go get Cease, probably takes you out of the top of the free agency market in terms of the pitchers. Now, instead of having to go out there and acquire an Aaron Nola, you're counting on Cease to lead the front end of your staff. And now you've got more money to be able to spend on your bullpen. Yeah. So you can go out there and make, I don't know what the Cardinals budget's going to be this offseason in terms of what they're willing to add to the payroll. But let's say it's like $50 million, right? That they're willing to spend this offseason on new players coming into the fold. Well, if you spend $30 million on Aaron Nola, and now you've got $20 million left over. You could probably get one other starting pitcher with that. And now you're starting to talk about getting rid of payroll to add more payroll to the roster. And that's where you could end up with like a very low-level starting pitcher. Whoop, what do I have left for the bullpen? Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot that's left uh, remaining for anybody to be added to the bullpen. If you go get Dylan Cease and he's making $10 million, that is $20 million less than what I would have had to pay on the open market for one of those number one starters I can now repurpose that $20 million and throw it at two bullpen arms at $10 million a piece. That is a, in terms of just what you're able to do with your roster, a much better plan in terms of the way that you utilize your money. Unfortunately, you now no longer have Nolan Gorman. Yeah. So it, it it is a massive cost to pay. And I don't know exactly what the White Sox would be asking for. I would think Gorman would be the first guy that they ask for. Maybe instead of Tommy Edmond, they say, you know what? We want... Nolan Gorman, we want Alec Burleson, and we want Gordon Graceffo as well, or we want Michael McGreevy as well, or one of those young starting pitchers that are currently, TK Roby, one of the young starters that are now in the Cardinal system. I could see them going more of the prospect route than the proven position player route, but that's the kind of thing that it's going to take, and I think that it's something that the Cardinals at least have to seriously consider, because when you look at this middle infield talent that the Cardinals have developed, dude... Look down into the minors at what they have going for them still down there. You look at what's taking place at AAA. That uh, Prado kid that they got from the Orioles, he's been pretty darn good for them. You look down in AA, 
Dude, Segasi looks like he might be the best player that they acquired yeah. at this year's trade deadline. He is just tearing the cover off of the baseball for the Springfield uh, Cardinals as well. So you've got those guys down in the minors. You, if you trade Gorman but don't have to include Edmund, you've still got Edmund here. That can be a capable everyday second baseman for you if needed. You've got the talent in that area of the infield if you wanted to go this route. And let's be honest, if you have Edmund and Wynn in your middle infield, you've suddenly very much improved yourself defensively as well. I do not want to trade Nolan Gorman if I don't have to. I but agree. if that's what it takes for you to be able to get this number one starter, this is the kind of guy that you open up those exploratory talks for. Dylan Cease, Logan Gilbert, that's the range that you have to be in for me to even discuss trading uh, Nolan Gorman. Yeah, and I, I think if they are looking the prospect route, which I think is potentially more likely because whoever comes in and takes over running things for the White Sox is going to want to start fresh. He's going to want his own crop that he's going to try and develop himself. Then the Cardinals should really be in on it because they've got the core position players so they can move as a JC if they wanted to, or the kid that you just said in triple a. And if you have, if you're getting an ACE, I think Roby or Hintz, one of those guys becomes a potential trade ship as well, because sure, you'd love to develop him in your system, but like the ceiling for Hintz and the ceiling for Roby are top-tier starting pitchers. And if I'm getting those guys and they're going to be there blocking them from that spot, then I think you can move one of them. Maybe not both, but one of them. And Graceffo McGreevy fall into the same conversation. They're more like three fours, but I'm going to be filling that spot in my rotation. Yeah. So I, I, I find the cease conversation to be very interesting to see the Cardinals being a team that should, should be really into that market. And to your point, like if you get him – He's not going to cost you as much of an ace, and you're still not out of shopping from that tier three. You can still be looking at the Yamamoto's, potentially the Sunny Grays, depending on what those deals look like. And now you have that money that you're spending on the two in a Gray slash Yamamoto. You're spending on a four like in a Paxson still. This is where I would and start got considering Giolito too. Yeah, Giolito suddenly becomes a really interesting I, addition. I don't know that I want to just recreate the White Sox I rotation. Say, I think I may just, if I get Cease, I may go bad culture. I don't need Giolito here. Eduardo Rodriguez then, right? Sure. Like somebody in that ilk of not attached to a qualifying offer. Now I can keep my second round pick if I go out there. That's the other thing to keep in mind. If you're trading for a number two starter or a number one starter, rather, in this instance, you don't have to give up the second round pick, which is a top 35 pick in next year's draft by going out and getting an Aaron Nola who will almost certainly be attached to a qualifying offer. So that's part of this calculus as well. What would we get at pick 35? How does that play into how we view what we're giving up in a trade for a number one starter? And then how does that apply to the money that we're also saving by not going out and signing that number one starter? There's a lot of things that go into these conversations that are more than just, I'm not trading Nolan Gorman. Like, I, I think that is such an easy stance for people to have. I don't want to trade Gorman. I th- I've seen a lot of people on the text line saying, like, BK is obsessed with trading Nolan Gorman. No, I'm not. I think that it's insane that the Cardinals have put themselves into a position where they might have to trade Nolan Gorman. The point here is not that you want to do any of this. The ideal scenario is you don't need to go out there and get a number one starter because you developed him. Yeah. Jack Flaherty became what the Cardinals wanted him to be. They re-signed him long-term, and now he's the guy that's leading the rotation. That was and should have been the plan, but it failed. Alex Reyes got hurt. They traded away Sandy Alcantara and Zach Allen. So now you've put yourself in a situation where next year you need a guy to lead this rotation. They do not exist internally. So you're either going to have to spend $30 million and give up a top 35 pick to go get that guy, and then that potentially hamstrings you elsewhere on your roster, or you deal from a position of strength, which is your middle infield, 
and you try to utilize the guy that, yes, it's going to hurt like hell, man, to trade this player. But trade Nolan Gorman to go out there and get a stud-level pitcher. Do you want to do it? No. Did the Royals want to trade Will Myers for James Shields and for Wade Davis? No, hell no, they didn't. But they could not figure out how to develop pitching, so they had to trade for it. Did the Cubs want to trade a middle infielder with all-star potential at the time for a closer for three months? Of course they didn't want to do it. But guess what? They wanted to win the World Series. In order to go get something of value, you have to give something of serious value. They're not going to take Tommy Edmond as a headliner. They're not going to take one of your other young prospects as a headliner. Alec Burleson, not a headliner. They're going to ask you for Jordan Walker, Mason Wynn, Nolan Gorman. Those are the guys that could headline a package like this. And I'm not even totally sure that Mason Wynn could headline this package. I think it's Walker or Gorman. So who are you willing to talk about? Because if you're not willing to give up either of those guys, you can kiss goodbye to the idea of going out and trading for a number one starter. And now we got to talk exclusively about signing one in the free agent market. And, and I'll say this too real quick because I know we got to get to break. I, I think your point on this then allows you to repurpose some money to the bullpen is very important to keep in mind in this conversation as well. Because I would much rather go this route and not spend the $25 million on a top-end arm to save some of that money to push towards the bullpen to get some veterans that have proven it before. And to maintain flexibility long-term as yes, well. Yes, because otherwise, if you if you go to the free agent market and have to sign a top-end guy, a second-tier guy, and then a fourth-tier guy, you're probably bargain bin shopping on the bullpen. And look, that can work. We see how how difficult it is to identify bullpen arms. But... If I have the chance to save some money and go get a bullpen arm that I know for a fact that, hey, he's been good for six years in a row, I want to go get that guy because there's a chance if you don't upgrade the bullpen and you just go bargain bin shopping on it, you're going to look like the mid-2010 Dodgers where you had the rotation, you had the position player core, the bullpen is what held back that group that had Matt Kemp there in L.A. for so long. The other thing that I'm seeing a lot of, guys, is trade for trade Paul Goldschmidt. He should be the one that you're trading instead. He's older, and he's somebody that's showing signs of regression already. Guys, that is a very similar situation to what Nolan Arenado had with the Rockies. He has a full no-trade clause. He can decide where he's going. You think he's going to accept a deal to Chicago? No, of course not. Paul Goldschmidt wants to be here. And so if he, if you went to Goldie and said, hey, give us a list of three teams that you would be willing to go to, guess what he'd do? He'd give you the three teams, and now you're stuck. Because those three teams know we're the only ones you're negotiating with. And realistically speaking of those three, maybe one of them actually wants to give up what it would take to get Paul Goldschmidt. You're not getting the haul that we think that you're getting for Paul Goldschmidt. You're not because of his full no trade clause. That's that's the kind of leverage that a player gets whenever he has that in his contract. It completely changes what the team is able to get in return for him. So Goldie's not getting you what we're talking about here. In order to get that, you have to give up stud, young, cost-controlled position players. And it sucks to trade that, but that's what it's going to take. Coming up next, let's play a game of more likely to happen. 314-399-9646 here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. What's more likely to happen? They'll figure it out. BK and Ferrario's most likely to happen. Three one four 
888-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service X line for more likely to happen. You give us two scenarios. We will tell you which one is more likely here on BK and Ferrario. T-Bone, more likely to end up in first place in their division next year. The New York Yankees or the San Diego Padres? Both teams having very disappointing seasons relative to expectation this year. The Padres are 60 and 67 now. The Yankees are 60 and 65. Which one of those two teams is more likely to get back to first in their division? I think I'm going to say Padres, even though like Otani is going to be wearing Dodger blue next year, <laughs> um, which is crazy to say. But I, but outside of the Dodgers, I, I'm not that high on San Francisco. I, I said this like three weeks ago. I think they're going to miss the playoffs. And BK would have thought I had no head when I said that. Um and like the Diamondbacks are an interesting team, but they got to go out and spend some money if they're going to be a team that's going to compete. I can see where things can click for the Padres. This is a weird year for them. Like they're a team. If you look at the, I don't remember what it's called, Pythagorean win loss. Yep. They should be way better than what they are because they've got a great run differential. I have seen though that they've only come back in games like six times this year. Which well, is they insane. clearly have a bad manager because they're very bad at one run yeah. games. Yeah. Clearly, Bob Melvin, bad Bob manager. Melvin, the guy that I think of as one of the worst managers in baseball. Yep. Um, so I would say Padres. I look at the Yankees. They're a mess. They're old, not athletic. They got terrible contracts on the books. I don't know how the hell they're fixing that in one offseason and winning in the best division in baseball. So I'm going to say the Padres. I will be curious to see what they do with their rotation in San Diego. Uh, that's that's the one big question that they have going into next year. And oh, by the way, not having Josh Hader at the back end of the pen is not going to help things. But you can fix a pen. You can overhaul that thing in an offseason. Uh, losing Waka and Snell is going to be a big part of what they've accomplished this year when it comes to the pitching side of things. But they're going to have a full season next year of Fernando Tatis Jr., who don't look now, T-Bone. That guy is back to playing at an MVP caliber level. He's probably going to break his wrist while doing he, skateboarding or something. He this has been these maybe he has been the best defender in the outfield in Major League Baseball this year by the numbers. Yeah, so good for him, impressive year by him. I'm definitely going to the Padres as well. The Yankees are stuck, dude. They are in a really bad position right now, and I don't think there's an easy way out of it. And much like here in St. Louis, the Yankees do not rebuild. So the idea of them going through a full-blown rebuild next year, that ain't going to play for Aaron Judge. That ain't going to play for Garrett Cole. That's not going to play for that fan base. So I'll be fascinated to see what their plans are this offseason to try to maneuver their way out of it. They just don't have a lot of flexibility. They don't have a lot of money to spend at this point because they've already spent it. And they don't have a lot of young position players or players in general, really, to get them any sort of upside trade. So they're a really interesting team this offseason. T-Bone, what do you got for us? More likely to happen, Cardinals lose 100 games this year or the Blues have a top 10 pick again after next season? Lose, wait, so say Cardinals lose 100 games this year or the Blues have another top 10 pick? I think it's more likely, I mean, given how they've been playing, it's probably more likely that the Cardinals lose 100 games. But neither of these should be shocking to anybody. I think both of these are like 50-50 propositions. The, the Blues barely got a top 10 pick last year, and they were bad, and they full-blown sell. So I'm going to go with the Cardinals lose 100 games. Getting a top 10 pick in the NHL is kind of hard. I'm I'm kind of with you because I think the Blues are going to be right in that playoff conversation. If you're right in the playoff conversation, you may not end up with a top 10 pick. I, you, Cardinals have to go 7-28. and 28. I don't even know where these games are. I'm not even looking at their schedule. Listen to who's left on the schedule, though, for the Cardinals. The Braves, the Orioles, 6 with the Phillies, 7 with the Brewers, 6 hmm. with the Reds. Oh, and though they are quote-unquote easy opponents, according to this thing I'm looking at for 
schedules. They've got another six games with the Padres still, and three more after today with the incredible Pirates. So I'm going to say more likely the Cardinals could lose 100 games and lose yeah. with a top 10 pick. The only quote-unquote easy team they play the rest of the way is Pittsburgh. Because yeah. I'm not I'm not counting San Diego as an easy, I'm not either. easy out. At least you, they got some wins there. I mean, Snell is on the schedule next week. Monday night, Ooh. I'm going to be watching that one closely. They for sure. the starter name for Tuesday. I think I'm going on Tuesday. Uh, Lugo, and then Rich yeah. Hill is on Wednesday night or Wednesday afternoon, rather. Uh, we know they're getting shut out by Rich Hill, so I would assume Snell's going five. He's going to give up one earned run in that one. Rich Hill's going seven. He's giving up one earned run as well. Maybe you beat Lugo, so yeah, it's nah, probably not. It's not good. Well, and I'd actually be surprised if the Blues weren't better than last season. I, I said yesterday that I thought the president's trophy or something. Well, not quite that high. I said four more wins than last season, oh. I think is likely for the blues. So I, I don't see them being in the top 10 conversation. Plus with the Cardinals, um, just continuing to finding ways to lose games. Yep. Um, a hundred losses doesn't seem too, uh, hard for them. Grant, do you have anything for us for more likely? Yeah, to happen? I'm trying. I'm going to try not to make this confusing. Okay. More oh, likely boy. to happen. Adam Wainwright, not getting to 200 wins edition. Is it more likely that it's a result of him not pitching well or is a result of bad play around him? Uh, more likely to, that it's a result of him not pitching well. It, it's really hard for this guy to get through five innings right now, man. And I thought last night he actually was really good for the first four innings of that game. But we've seen now once it goes awry for him and he's got to throw T-Bone, you mentioned this before the show as well. When he's got to throw a bunch of pitches in any individual inning, he just loses it. it there's... It's really hard for him to be able to maintain his stuff in an inning that extends beyond what he's comfortable with. That makes sense. The guy is 41 years old. He's going to be 42 next week. It's really hard to pitch 20 plus pitches in an inning at 25 to do that at 42. Good luck, dude. And so I, I think he just runs out of gas and to try to get him through five innings is a chore right now to get him beyond that is really difficult I think it's more likely that it happens because he is not pitching particularly well because for most of the season he hasn't pitched well yeah I'm with you and I think I think it could be a mixture a really good mixture of both but if I had to pick one I would definitely say it's because his stuff you could tell last night once he has to really push himself through an inning he looks gassed he looked gassed in the fifth inning last night and that was the inning that snowballed on them so I think it's going to be one of those to where if he can't somehow remain efficient and finish innings within 15 pitches, it's going to be tough for him to really extend himself and get to 200 wins and get through five innings. So I'd say it's more likely him pitching. All right. Final thing here as we go through some uh, more likely to happen. 3143999646 is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved in the show. More likely to win their respective division, the Baltimore Ravens or the Los Angeles Chargers? This is easy to make the Baltimore Ravens. You ain't beating the Chiefs. You got Brandon Staley as your head coach. No shot you're beating the Chiefs. So I would definitely say more likely that it would be the Baltimore Ravens. Look, Joe Burrow and the Cincinnati Bengals are a great team, but I could see where like they have a one-off kind of year in Baltimore with their pieces plays really well. I've not seen Mahomes and Andy Reid have a one-off year yet. And even if Mahomes has a one-off year, we're talking, what, like third in MVP yep. voting? Like, It's insane how good that tandem is. So I can't see the Chargers winning their division. It, but, would, it would take an injury. Yeah. Like a, a, an injury to, to Mahomes. either Mahomes or Kelsey. That just Mahomes. I, I, even if Kelsey's out, 
I, I thought last year, I was like, man, who the hell is he throwing this football to without Tyreek Hill? Sure, he's got Travis Kelsey. He made Valdez, Scantling look good. Like, he made everybody look good on that team. I've never seen him without Kelsey. So, and, and listen, fair. This is, I want to be very clear. I'm not questioning Patrick Mahomes' greatness. I know Mahomes is the best. For me, by the eye test, he's the best quarterback I've watched. Brady's the GOAT. Mahomes is the best that I've personally watched. I, I wonder what it looks like this season with the surrounding cast that he has very young receivers if Kelsey were to go down. I, I don't know the answer. It might be fine. He may end up figuring out a way and it's it's A-OK. But that would be the one the one question that I would have is you got a lot of young players around him. Could they win like 12 games and the Chargers win 13? And that's no. the way that they win if Kelsey no. were to go down. Well, I was thinking Ravens here, too. And by the way, Joe Burrow, that injury that he had over the offseason, what's the status on that? Have you guys heard? I how he's, he's going to be fine go. for week one. That's but still a little bit concerning going into the season. They do have a really difficult schedule this year. Um, that That is something to keep in mind as well. Like down the stretch, Minnesota, Pittsburgh, Kansas City, Cleveland. I'd be curious to see what happens with uh, the Bengals this year. I do think their defense could take a little bit of a step back. I still think they're amazing, though. I, I agree. I, I love Cincinnati. Just not betting against freaking Patrick Mahomes. That's fair. Coming up next, it's a good stance to take. The minor league strike zones this year, specifically in AAA, have completely changed the way that we need to evaluate some of these players that are coming up to the big leagues. We'll explain why coming up next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. We're just trying to evaluate guys. I take the I take ERAs and I take walk rates with a grain of salt, which is difficult because those are the two most telling basic stats of a pitcher is having right. a good year or not, the walk rate and the ERA. Um, but I also look at pitch profile, and Hudson's a sinkerball guy, so you know that he needs to fill the zone up. Thompson, we're still figuring out what exactly his arsenal can be because it can kind of change between a reliever and a starting pitcher. But I think it's just a case-by-case basis, and I'm sure the that minor league baseball, major league baseball will figure out the ABS system and continue to, to modernize it and perfect it. That was Katie Wu on with us earlier this week talking about why the stats are so different this year in AAA than they are for some of the pitchers specifically that are coming up to the big league level. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kiley. So let's take a look at, just as an example, a guy like Zach Thompson this year because he's pitching on the mound today for the Cardinals, putting together yet another solid outing for St. Louis. Just got out of a bases loaded jam uh, for the Cards. When he was down in the minor leagues, T-Bone, he was walking 22% of the batters that he faced. Let me say that one more time. One out of every four batters, more or less, was coming up to the plate and taking a walk against Zach Thompson. They had a 218 on-base percentage without getting a single hit while he was down in the minor leagues. They also hit 300 against him. That's brutal. It's not what you want. The reason why I bring that up is because when he's been at the big league level this year, He's walking 9% of the batters that he faced. That shouldn't happen. It should be the opposite, right? You come up to the big league level, you've got hitters that are more selective. Why is it that when he goes down to AAA, he struggles the way that he has? There's got to be something that's changed, right? Well, there has been. This year, down in AAA, and there's a really good piece earlier today from Jeff Jones of the Belleville News Democrat on the strike zone that is being called down there. 
three days a week, they are going full automatic ball strikes. And the way that they have done the system this year down in AAA, it is a legitimately different strike zone at AAA than it is at the big league level. Instead of being called what we're used to, which is a slightly larger than the home than home plate zone in terms of the width and going up to like your ladders in terms of the strike zone, it goes up to the waist in AAA, which is basically middle middle when it comes to the big leagues. So those high four seam fastballs that we've become so accustomed to, like think about what gives Nolan Gorman, for example, the most trouble, those pitches are balls in AAA. Now think about Zach Thompson's arsenal. It's a high four seam fastball and then the curveball off of it. That's his arsenal. So those fastballs that are going in for strikes here that he's getting swings and misses on, they are balls down in the minor leagues. So guys just aren't swinging at it. They're sitting on the curveball and then bam, gone. So if you're looking at some of these pitchers that are in the Cardinal system right now, now for some, it matters more than others. But for a guy like Zach Thompson, I told Alex a couple of weeks ago, and I should apologize to the man. Yeah, I won't should. do it, but I'd I should. I'd say text him, but he may not respond. I told him, why should we expect Zach Thompson to be capable of being a starter when they tried to get him to do that down in AAA and he failed spectacularly? What I did not take enough into account at that point was he's basically playing a different sport. The rules changed on him. It's like if you were doing like a create your own adventure or choose your own adventure book, and it's completely different the first time that you do it than the second time. That's what AAA is right now as a pitcher compared to the big leagues. So I think the big leagues might be more suitable to the way that Zach Thompson is trying to pitch. I also think this makes it damn near impossible to evaluate talent at AAA right now and adjust what you think they're going to be able to do at the big league level. That's why I think a guy like Guillermo Zuniga, get him up. Well, let's see what he looks like with this strike zone with these rules. A guy like Mason Wynn, I'm really glad he's up now because I want to see how he adjusts to that high fastball that's going to be coming at him now. How does he adjust to the wider uh, zone at the plate where maybe you are going to get some more stuff that's low and away? Are you able to, to figure out how you approach with that? This is going to be something that Major League Baseball teams have to cope with. And if you look at the stats this year down in AAA, dude, pitchers are struggling. Every pitching prospect in every system, for the most part, that goes down to AAA has these bloated numbers. And you were talking about this in the PCL. It seems like the average ERA is like a six. It's insane what's taking place down in AAA. So as you're looking at some of these numbers, keep that in the back of your mind, especially as it pertains to pitchers that profile like a Zach Thompson. Yeah, and to your point, it is really hard to evaluate a pitcher then and figuring out what is going on and how it will translate to the major leagues if it's a completely different strike zone. Because to your point, even though I kind of defended Zach Thompson, I didn't think he'd work out as a starter here at the big league level because there was no proof that it would work at AAA. Same with the Dakota Hudson, a guy that had a 6 ERA down in the minors. All of a sudden, he's here and he looks like a capable starter at the major leagues. So it is really tough for, I would think, organizations to try and evaluate what their starting pitchers are. But the other side of this, too, is, okay, what happens? Is this going to be the same zone when this gets to Major League Baseball? Right. This is probably going to be here in two, three years would be my guess. Granted, I would really hope they make the strike zone a little bit better than what it is. I don't think they're going to do this. I think they're going to do the other strike zone that they're utilizing down in AAA, which is umpires are still calling balls and strikes, but you have the challenge system. Agreed. I I hope that they do not go to the full automatic ball strikes. I, I want to see them go with the umpire calling balls and strikes, and then last night, instead of Wilson Contreras getting called out on that pitch, 
he's able to challenge it. You go to the big board and then it becomes a moment for all of us where we find out was that a ball or was it a strike? It's quick. It's implemented immediately into the game. You get three of them per game. That's what I think that they should be doing. Yeah, I'm with you. I hope they don't go straight just to the robots calling the because I still want some human element, but also too like the challenge system seems like it works. Add a little element of excitement. Someone from the six three six. Why are why are they setting up the robots to not call strikes by the by the rules? They want more offense, is what they and want. they've changed the rules. Yeah, because according to the AAA rule book now, that is the strike zone. They are calling what it is in the rules because the 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 rules are set up by the TrackMan data. They are now set up to go 51% of the player's height, which is basically the waist. Yeah. So instead of it being at the numbers now, the bottom of the numbers, that is no longer what they're going by. They're not going by the players, how, how they're built. They're going based on a percentage of their height. So it completely alters the way that you're getting the game called against you. Now, what you can say is every player now knows what the strike zone is. Like they can do the data on that player and say, hey, this is where 51% of your height is. That is where the balls and the strikes will be called. So you know how high it has to be against every single team in every ballpark in America. This is where the top of my zone is. And it's specific to you. So you're always playing accordingly. So maybe that does help a little bit. But uh, man, I I don't love it. I think it's too much offense. And I I think it's too much walks specifically. I, I think this is going to get to a place where the worst play in baseball is a walk. There is no action that is involved for anybody on the field. And if that is something that we see more of at the big league level instead of less of at the big league level, I think that's going to ultimately cause more issues than it solves. And, and you're probably going to see that because what is it that you're paying pitchers for? It's not command. It's for swinging and stuff. Yeah. And what does that mean? It means you're throwing harder and have less control of your stuff. And if walk weight, walk walk rates really skyrocket, Major League Baseball is going to hate that. I understand why they did this because if you take out the top of the zone, you take out the swing and miss stuff because with all these ba- all these hitters now that are looking for a launch angle, they can't really get anything at the top of the zone. So what do you do? You cut that down, hoping that you force more pitches low in the zone, which increases the offense because hitters can get to it more. But it also increases uh, ground balls, which increases the athleticism that you need on the middle infield. And you're trying to get the game back to where it was when people loved it the most, which was like the mid-80s. But nobody loved the walk. (laughs) Exactly. That's the problem is there's unintended consequences of what they're trying to do. Because instead of pitchers just pitching at the bottom of the zone they're still trying to get that four seam up and instead of it getting hit now it's just going in for a ball and guys are taking their walks because why because players are incentivized to take walks it's a good play for the hitter it's a bad play for major league baseball so i i hope that they don't go to this zone i hope that they don't go to the automatic ball strikes entirely at the big league level i hope that in the future triple a goes away with this system Agree. And the major leagues adopt the challenge system. I, I think that's the right way to go. It, it it's it's kind of the midpoint, right? We get a lot of textures that say teams are going too far into the analytics. I think there may be some truth to that. You need a, a healthy balance of both. You need the numbers to be able to inform your decisions, but also, hey man, some of these guys have been in baseball their entire lives. Maybe they know a little something about the game that they're seeing. Hey, the right fielder every time that um, he throws it into the infield, he's not really paying attention to the guy that's coming in from second. Let's go ahead and run on him. Let's let's see. Like we we could probably score on this guy. Take advantage of his arm out there. That's a pre-scouting thing. That's just that's not going to show up necessarily in any number. 
but it's a baseball thing that somebody came up with as a pre-scout. That's the kind of stuff you still need in your bag as well. And for something like this, I, there is something to like, hey, let's let's let baseball continue to be baseball. I, I think we might have gone a little too far with this one. So let's let's scrap that idea. Keep it. Keep keep going out there and getting some of these experiments into the game. But when they don't work, be willing to adjust accordingly. Don't be too agree. married to any of these things that you're trying to accomplish at AAA. All right. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so. There's one pitcher on the Cardinals roster that I just can't quite figure out what's going on with them. Tell you who that is coming up at the top of the hour. But coming up next, I've got a question for all of you that text with your dads. We'll get into it with the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. Let's dive into the juncture alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis. I'm Brandon Kylie. Alex out this week. He'll be back in next week. If you guys have missed anything from today's show, check it out on the podcast page. You can also see us as always on YouTube at 101 ESPN STL. So guys, I think there's something that happens when not only people turn into dads, but about 20 years after around the time when you maybe are starting to have some grandchildren where Maybe it's a generational thing, honestly, with just when you came into a cell phone. Dads are the worst at texting. I don't know how or why this happened, but dads are the worst. They're typically one-word answers. Like, you get in and you text your dad and you tell him all about something, and the response is typically, sure, or yes, or okay, just O and K. T-Bone, do you have somebody in your life that is that way? Is it your dad? It's not my dad. My uncle is that way. My grandparents are that way, too. Where it's just one do word. do you have somebody in your life that no matter what you send, you could say, I just had my firstborn, and he's seven pounds, four ounces. It's baby Andrew. And that response would be, cool. Cool. <laughs> like, you know, T-Bone, you know who it is, and you're, it's your uncle. For me, it is, it's my father-in-law. Who is the guy in, or the person in your life that texts that way? My dad can be like that at times. He's usually not like one word answers, though. What he does a lot is he'll text me, call me. <laughs> there you no go. explanation. Just oh, that's the worst. I don't, or, another, if I wanted to call you, I'd call you. I know. I don't another thing my dad does is before every single text. You also assume the worst. If, oh, yeah. if yeah. I get a text yeah. from anybody that says call me, I'm assuming they're in the hospital or somebody that I love. Is yeah. in the and then I'll see him like 10 minutes later at home. I'm like, why? Why didn't you just wait? Like, you didn't need to tell me that right there. But another thing he does when texting is he'll always start the text with Grant. <laughs> like, you don't signed. need to pre-state my name my favorite is when it's signed on a text message so like they'll send grant dash the body of the text and then dad, dad. <laughs> it's the best it's like sending an email it's like dad i 
I know, man. man. Like your your number is in my phone. See, it's, when it says it right here. Up. It says right here. Yeah. <laughs> it pops up that my dad just texted me. I'm aware that this is coming from you, Dad. I will say I don't send like one word responses, but I am very bad about texting back. Really? I am so like I will get a text and I'll be doing something. I'll be like, okay, I'll respond to that later. And then it'll be two days later and be like, oh, I never responded to that. I, I typically go with an emoji if it's like one of those words like, hey, the conversation's done. I just need to know you got the text sure. instead of like, okay, sure. It typically just said like the thumbs up, thumbs up emoji. Absolutely. Or you just like. You how like they the message. Lot. Yeah, you yeah, like, yeah, the, you message, like the message, something like yeah. that. Somebody on the text line said one of my favorite things is that my dad never uses punctuation, so I can't tell if they're <laughs> making a statement, asking a question, or generally unhappy. This is the other thing with texting sometimes is there will be times I've got a buddy, um, his name's Jeff, it, the worst texter you've ever met. It, no, no, and then no, um, no punctuation. You never know if he's like pissed off or happy or somewhere in between. There's just like a cool. Yeah, sure. Uh-huh. It's like, dude, are we good? Like, are, are we in a bad place right now? Did our friendship end up on the rocks and I wasn't familiar with what took place? Some people that you text are just the absolute worst. Somebody on the text line, though, says grown men just don't need the fluff and the BS. Get to the point and get out of the conversation. Hey, I respect that. I, the thing that I find more frustrating is that it's not so much the one word answers like that I can get by. Sure. It, it's more the one taking a long time to answer a text when I know you've got your phone on you. I have that all the time where I'll Sorry. text my uncle, <laughs> Grant, for example. BK or, now that he has a kid. BK now that he has a kid. You're not bad. Like, I'll text my uncle. It'll take 24 hours before I get a response sometime. I'm like, dude, I know you got your phone on you. I've been to your house. I know the phone is with you, and it takes 24 hours to respond. Or the one where... I would rather have the one word answer where it is sure or okay rather than an answer where I go, what the, you didn't answer the question. You basically answered my question with another question and now we're in an awkward spot in our text chain. That's the worst. See, like at least you have an excuse if you don't text back immediately because you just had a kid. Like sure. Alex has two kids. I have no excuse. Like I, I feel like every time I do that and I have to like reach out to my friend after I need to send like a press release <laughs> stating like I'm sorry, I'm terrible. I need to, this is my public Sign apology, Grant. Yeah. <laughs> it starts out by saying, "Dear all of those affected, <laughs> the body of the message. I'm sorry." It's so signed, bad. Grant. Your uh. friend, Grant. Uh, for Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kylie. Moral of the story: Dads are the best and the worst at the same time when it comes. Uh, to texting. I I think it might be a generational thing. It might just be a personality thing, but um, I saw something on this the other day, and I was like, yeah, I, everybody has somebody in their life that they immediately think of when they think, oh, one-word text, no punctuation, never really sure if they're mad or not, and the signing their name at the end of a text message. Is that what your dad does? Is that who you thought of? With the So my dad is like the over-texter, where oh. it is like a... Book. extended book of here's what I did today he he goes way too far my father-in-law I I'll bring this up I, I texted him we got free tickets last year to the um the Cardinals game the weekend of the Hall of Fame announcement so Matt Holiday's going in I text him I'm like hey you know wife's out of town for the weekend I said would you want to go right invited him to the game he said, sure. <laughs> okay, cool. I can't tell if that means you actually want to go or not, but we'll go. So I tell him kind of what time we're going to be. We're going to be there. We got sweet tickets. Um, so I'm like hey, explaining all of this to him. His response was, okay. It, 
that's it. Just okay. No, no period. Not, not even okay. A well, just okay. <laughs> so he's the one that I Brutal. think of whenever I go down this route. <laughs> he does have a little bit like when we. When we would text any updates about Luca, he gets excited about stuff like that. But that's pretty much it. See, the best thing to do if you have like a long thing you want to type out, like a long text, best thing to do, I think, is Send just call like, me. Well, no, <laughs> no, is like do one of the voice texts. Like, sure. Not, oh, no, I, that can no, be no, no, worse. No. I'm not talking about like uh, voice to text. It's like sending voice oh, memos back and forth. Yes, That's okay. what I meant. At that it's point, like, just call. Yeah. If you're exactly. sending me a voice to text, yeah. dude, just pick I'm up the with, phone. I'm with PK. I, mean, yeah. and I, I avoid. But it gives me time also like to think about a response if I want to. I, I would, I'm with BK, and I avoid calls. Ryder, our executive producer, knows this. There are times I just send him to voicemail. I know what he's calling about. I'll just text him five minutes later, and Ryder knows that. See, I actually like the voice memo text. Really? Yeah, I do. Oh, dude, if you send me one of those, I'm you know I'm that, blocking your number. You know that meme that said like, "Congrats" or "I'm sorry." I'm not reading all that. That will be my response. <laughs> well, it's not like super long. Like I'm not sending three minute texts. You send me five seconds worth of a voice memo. I'm out. Uh uh-uh. uh You send me a text. Wow. Send me a text or call me. Those are your two options. Option three is not available when you text me. You two need to get with the times. <laughs> Apparently, that's like people that Snapchat instead of texting. Like, oh, man, I, I do don't that. have that. In my I life. do that. Uh-uh. I do both. Nope. Still don't send a bug. Poorly. I, I do both poorly. I realized when Snapchat came around, all right, I'm officially washed. Because yeah, that was well. the first like social media thing that I was like, I'm not interested in this. I can't do this. I'm out. I'm completely out on the Snapchat thing. You want me to get on Insta? All right, cool. I can do that. Twitter, got it. Facebook, whatever. You want me to go on Snapchat as well? Nope, that's the end of things for me. Coming up next, there is one Cardinals pitcher that I just can't figure out right now what his role is, what his role is going to be moving forward, whether or not he's even really a part of the team right now. We'll talk about who that is next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Just like some tightness, soreness, you know, like all the in-between, you know, trying to bounce back and not throwing for 10 weeks, you know, there's some growing pains there. And I think it's just trying to figure out, you know, what's causing it and, you know, where I can build that strength up and get back and feel better. That was Ryan Helsley discussing his rehab assignment and why it is stalled on Bally Sports Midwest. Tanner Hendrickson alongside Brandon Kiley and Grant Francis. And VK, I was just telling the audience about what Ryan Helsley had to say about why his rehab stalled, his arms bothering him again. So I don't know what to make of Ryan Helsley. I also don't know what to make of me getting a water and taking too long to get back from break. That's what my apologies. What the hell happened, man? So Ryan Helsley had his rehab stalled multiple times. And yesterday they said, okay, looks like Ryan Helsley is going to be able to go back on yet another rehab stint. T-Bone, I I don't know what to do with him, honestly, because at this point they have checked his flexor tendon in the UCL multiple different times. He's been out since June 10th. We are now at August 23rd. This has been two and a half months of Ryan Helsley attempting to come back from the forearm strain that he's been dealing with. Now, I will say this. From Ryan Helsley's perspective, I I understand why he's being super cautious. If you think about it through his perspective, a couple of years ago, he had a similar kind of an issue, came back from it too quickly, and 
it ended up becoming an even bigger issue as a result of that. So I understand why he wants to be cautious. But T-Bone, you made a great comparison earlier today in the in the room office before we came on the air. You're watching the Netflix documentary Quarterback, right? And on it, you see Kirk Cousins going through most of the season last year with an injury that wasn't really disclosed during the regular season. Vikings probably should be in trouble for this, but whatever. He had he had rib issues all year long. And there were some games where he could barely breathe because of how incredibly painful this was. But he figured out a way to grit through it, right? And this is in a high-contact sport where he's getting crushed in every single game. So afterwards, he knows he's going to feel like crap, but he's going out there to compete with his teammates. Now, right now, the Cardinals are out of it, whatever. Like, the, this is not the time when you try to push through an injury. But if they're telling you multiple times, hey, you're fine. There's there's nothing here. There is no issues structurally or anything like that. I do wonder what the future holds for Ryan Helsley with this team because I don't know if they can trust him to be on the field regularly. And if that's the way that you're constructing your bullpen is with him at the back of it, I think you're going to have to go into the season acknowledging, hey, there's a real chance that we don't have Ryan Helsley for half of the season this year. And that's a really hard thing to piece together around a guy that you think can be your closer, but you're never totally sure when he's going to be there. Yeah, and I think that's why you saw them try and move him this offseason for a catcher. Remember, he was connected in the Danny Jansen uh, trade rumors when the Cardinals were searching for a catcher. Is because I think when you have Helsing on your roster, you have to plan on him not being here for a certain percentage of games. And that is tough to do with a bullpen. And and look, if, if he had gone and gotten tests, which he just did, and nothing came back, at least from what the Cardinals are saying, and something was there and they said, okay, now, this makes sense. It is time to shut down again and slow this down then I get it because with the Kirk Cousins things that you mentioned that I saw on the quarterback documentary, you could tell like if he said, hey, something's wrong because I can't breathe or I've got, I think I've got a broken rib, it makes sense because the Vikings know he's hurt. With Helsley, it's, hey, my elbow hurts. Well, then the Cardinals look at it and they say, well, it shouldn't be hurting. There's nothing there that says this is a injury. This is general soreness. You need to pitch through that if you're going to be a guy for us that we can count on and he's unwilling to do that, it screams Tyler O'Neill 2.0. Tyler O'Neill had a back injury for, yep. I don't even remember how long he was out. And the Cardinals kept saying, yeah, he's getting testing done. There's nothing there, though. Well, okay, well, that is that is hurt compared to being injured. And if you're going to be that as a guy that you're going to count on out of your bullpen, if he's not going to pitch when he's hurt compared to being injured, and again, I'm not saying you pitch if you're injured, but sure. if you're dealing with general soreness, that's going to happen. You can't count on Ryan Helsley. Ryan Helsley has shown the Cardinals that he cannot be counted upon to be the guy that they bank on as their closer next year going into 2024. It's just hard for me to watch what Brendan Donovan did this year and then compare it to yeah. some of these other things that we're seeing and not try to say, like, man, that's the guy that you want to compete with. Like, I'll go I'll go to bat with Brendan Donovan on my team every day of the week. I want that guy to be a part of the culture of the St. Louis Cardinals in 2024. I want Nolan Arenado, who's going out there every day, even when his back's on fire earlier in the season, and we're seeing we're sitting there saying, Hey, why is his defense taking a step back? Why does he he look like the same player? The answer was probably because he was hurt. He was playing through something. It was bothering him. He has admitted publicly now, like, hey, I, I took some days off when it came to grounders. I got dead arm as a result of that when I tried to really kind of ramp up what I was doing with my arm. It took me a little while to get back to being who I am. Fair. He was a below average defender in the first half of the season. And since like early July, he's been one of the best third basemen in baseball. Once again, when it comes to what he's doing defensively, I'll take that dude on my team as well. You know who else I'll throw into this category? 
and he hasn't had a good season offensively. But Dylan Carlson deserves a lot of credit for trying to battle through what was very clearly a frustrating ankle injury for him this year. He had a high ankle sprain. He tries playing through it. It's still bothering him a little bit, but he says, you know what? This is a big year for me. I got to find a way to battle through this thing. It went poorly. It didn't go as well for Carlson as it did for like a Brendan Donovan, for example, who became one of the better hitters in the sport whenever he was playing through that elbow injury because he couldn't throw and now he has to have surgery. Well, at least he was willing to go out there for his team. That's something that I I can't always say about Tyler O'Neill. I can't always say that about Orion Helsley. And it's it's hard to have these conversations because I'm it, it sounds like I'm calling these guys soft and I, I promise you I'm not. But when you're inside of that clubhouse and you're going through it the way that Arnado was or you're going through it the way that Donovan does, if you're looking around the room and you don't feel like everybody else is giving as much to the team as you are, they're not willing to sacrifice for the team the way that you are. That does start to creep into the back of your mind where you're like, man, this isn't going to work. Yeah. And especially if you're on the coaching staff as well, you got to look at it and say, are my guys fully invested? Are they willing to give everything that is necessary for us to be able to win? Because winning is hard at this level. So I, I think a guy like Ryan Helsley, you got to take a look at that. Does he need to be shipped off this offseason? A guy like Tyler O'Neill, not only do you take a look at it, he just needs to be shipped off after the season. You've got to start remaking what this club's going to look like. You got to start getting this identity more into the Brendan Donovans and less into the Tyler O'Neills. And, and from the 618, you're comparing a flamethrower reliever to a position player, apples and oranges. I somewhat agree with that because you are a little bit more cautious when a reliever or a pitcher is dealing with some sort of soreness. But is Ryan Helsley the guy that's going to take the ball three days in a row like Jordan Hicks did when this team was on the when they were trying to avoid becoming sellers? Yeah. I don't think he would. I, I really don't. I he did not pitch in a lot of back to backs last year. He is very. They are very cautious with him, and I think that is partly not just the team, but also partly on Ryan Helsley. Is he a guy that's taking the ball three days in a row? I don't think he is. And, and I bet Hicks was sore when he was doing that. He didn't ever publicly say that. But throwing three days in a row at 102 yeah. miles an hour, throwing 15-plus pitches three days in a row, yeah, I bet Jordan Hicks was sore. But he said, give me the ball, coach, because I want to win this series for us. I want to shut the door down, and I want to try and keep us in contention. I don't think Ryan Helsley would do that. He hasn't shown that kind of instinct to do that yet. And think about what happened in Milwaukee. When you think to what they did at last year's trade deadline, yes, it imploded their season. We all know what the story was at the end of last year. But part of why they decided to move on from one of the best relievers in baseball was for the reason that we're talking about right now. Yep. Because you need dudes that are willing to take the ball. And he said, hey, I'm not doing the the three days in a row. I don't even like doing back-to-backs. I, like I need a clean inning. Like, I, I need specific criteria for when I'm willing to pitch. That makes things really difficult for you as a manager. And you put up with it for a while, but when that guy starts making real money and when you start having to count on him even more and more and more, it it sometimes is better to go with something different. And for the Cardinals right now, what they need is something different. That They need to go out there and be able to find guys that can go out there every single day when they need to take the ball and take it. Chris Stratton, that dude would take the ball every single day. That is what you're missing in this bullpen right now. And it's something they've got to find going into next year. Coming up next, I've maybe never been more wrong than I was about this particular team and the way that they approached the deadline. T-Bone's going to take his victory lap coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
when the Angels decided, well, we got to go for it. We've got Shohei Otani. We're still kind of in it. Mike Trout's going to come back at some point. Let's see what we can do here. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kiley. July 31st, they're 56-51. and 51. The odds of them making it to the playoffs at that point were like 15%. So it was pretty narrow. The, the margin for error there was very thin. But they decided, you know what, bleep it. Let's go for it. Because we already have committed ourselves to Shohei Otani. We're going to suck next year either way. Let's let's see if we can make it to the playoffs, and maybe that'll convince Shohei, you know what, you can do what you want to do with the Dodgers. You can just do that right here in Anaheim. You don't even have to change jerseys this offseason. We'll give you the $50 million. Well, it's gone about as poorly as anybody could have possibly anticipated. Huh. In the month of August, T-Bone, they've won five games. Oh, oh. <laughs> brutal. Five. They lost a series against Atlanta, got swept against Seattle, lost two out of three against Houston, lost two out of three against Texas, and then lost two out of three against Tampa, and then yesterday lost in a walk-off against the Cincinnati Reds. The moves have not worked. Mike Trout made his return yesterday. I don't think that's going to be enough for them. This is going to be, we're going to look back on this and say, it's it's one of the worst situations that a team put themselves in post-trade deadline in Recent memory. T-Bone, I loved it at the time. I still think it was the right call, even though it's gone horribly, horribly bad for them. You were on the opposite side from the moment that they decided to go this direction. How are you feeling about it today as you're watching them just completely fall apart in front of us? It feels good to be right, you know? It really does. Because it made no sense at the deadline. I know they were just three back, but you just you just read off their playoff percentage. 15%. And the thing that was really the most flabbergasting about it was the fact that no matter that you had a poor farm system, you could kind of look to restructure it by trading Otani and the prospects that you were going to get because you were going to get a haul for him. And you decided to, instead of just re revamping your prospect system, you depleted even more for one last push on a very like Hell a yeah. win into the playoffs. It was terrible baseball management, terrible. And the guys you got were average. Average. Your bullpen sucks. Your rotation sucks. And what did you do? You added Giolito, and then you went out and got Crone, and you went out and you got uh, who's Gritchick, who I would have loved in St. Louis if they were contending. But he was not their answer. They're dealing with too many injuries. They, they Their bullpen's terrible. Their rotation's terrible. And they said, let's just deplete the farm system more. Why not? It made no sense. By the end of the day today, they played doubleheader today. They're probably going to lose both of those. It's possible. If they do, they will be closer to the Chicago White Sox in the standings than they are uh, the Seattle Mariners, who currently hold the third wild card spot in the American League. Think about that for a second. They will be as close to the team that is the third worst record in the American League than they are the third wild card. It, It could not have gone any worse. And part of why they had to add the players that you're talking about, T-Bone, is because they didn't have anybody in their farm system. So what you have to do instead is, instead of going out and acquiring a really solid position player, you go out and add Eduardo Escobar and Randall Gritchick and CJ Crone and Mike Moustakis, because that's what's available. When your crap system hasn't been able to develop any talent for five years— you're stuck. 
And those are the players that are available to you to be able to go out there and acquire. The other thing that has gone horribly awry for them is that so far, after Lucas Giolito has uh, been brought to their system, he has a 7.1 ERA, man. He's been legitimately bad for them. Now, last night, it wasn't necessarily his fault. Gave up four runs, but only one of them was earned, and it came on a homer. Had nine strikeouts against Cincinnati. But it's gone in five starts now. He's given up three, nine, three, four, and four runs. That's just not what they were expecting when they gave up a haul to be able to go out and get a guy like that. So all of their trades have gone awry, and now... They are completely stuck, and there is no path forward, and this is why, T-Bone, I look around not just the National League, but baseball in general, and for as frustrating as it is to watch the Cardinals right now, and as a disastrous of a season as this has been, you look at the teams that are kind of around them in the standings, I think the Cardinals have a better path forward than the vast majority of the teams that are around them. The hell is the path forward for the White Sox? What are the Royals, the A's, or the Rockies trying to accomplish right now? What exactly can the Mets do to repurpose this thing next year to get back to not just being like an okay team, but legitimately a contender? Is there anything that the Yankees or the Angels can do to be able to get back to that place? Some of the vast majority of the teams that are under 500 right now, you can put them if we just did the name game and you say this team or the Cardinals, who would you rather be going into next year? I think the Cardinals are better than, or at least better situated than almost all of them. Do you want to do this real quick? Let's Teams that are under 500. Would you rather be that team going into this offseason or the Cardinals when the goal in mind is to make the playoffs in 2024, right? Would you rather be the Cardinals or the Angels? Cardinals. The Cardinals or the Yankees? Cardinals. Cardinals or the Guardians? Cardinals. Cardinals or the Padres? Uh, pri- I'd probably lean towards Padres. But I could hear an argument for the Cardinals. Division certainly plays into that yeah. one a lot. Cardinals or the Mets? I'd say Cardinals. Cardinals or Tigers? I'd say Cardinals. Cardinals or Nationals? I'd definitely say Cardinals. Pirates? I'd say Cardinals. White Sox? I they're about to rebuild a rebuild. So Rockies, Cardinals. Royals, or A's? Definitely Cardinals. So let's see how high we have to go up before we get to a team that you'd rather be than the Cardinals going into next year. Cardinals or the Marlins? Who would you rather be going into next year? Or this offseason? I'd probably, I might say the Marlins there because they've got the young pitching. All they need to do is figure out what they're going to do with offense, and you can find bats on the market to do that that are cheap. The Reds? I think I'd rather be the Reds. Again, young, they, they got a young core and they've got an ace that they've developed in Hunter Green. Giants? I'd rather be the Cardinals. I, the Giants. Twins? Cardinals. Uh, Cubs? Probably Cubs because I think they're going to spend big in the offseason. Red Sox? Uh, I'd probably be Cardinals. They don't have a great core, in my opinion. Diamondbacks? I might rather be the Diamondbacks there. They got two front-end starters, and you got pretty good core that's coming up through your system. And then above them is like the the contenders that we've been talking about all year. Braves, Orioles, Dodgers, Rays, Rangers, Astros, Mariners, Blue Jays, uh, Brewers, and the Phillies. If you want to take any of those over the Cardinals, that's totally fair. Those teams are all at least 12 games above 500, and I'm I'm not going to argue either way. So really... Among the teams that are 10 games above 500 or below, the Marlins, the Reds, the Cubs, and the Diamondbacks, those are the teams that are in the conversation with the Cardinals as you would take them over the Cardinals. Man, as, again, awful of a season as this has been, Cardinals are right in the conversation with some of these other teams that are going to be super compelling going into 2024. So 
it is not, all is not lost. And the other thing that I think is important, the Yankees, the Mets, the Cardinals, the White Sox, they've all gone about this completely differently. All of them took very paths to the same destination. They're all stuck. Or they're all, in right now, non-contending status. The Yankees paid the big money. They went out and they made the big trade for Giancarlo Stanton. They paid two aces to be at the front of the end of their rotation with Garrett Cole and Rod- uh, Rodon. It's all failed. It's yeah. all they they paid the massive deal to bring back Aaron Judge in the offseason. They've brought in stars all over the place, but they can't develop position players, and it's left them where they're old, slow, unathletic, and they can't produce the players that are necessary. The Mets are basically the same story as the Yankees. They spent the money. They made the trades. They brought in all of the star players that you wanted. I wanted Francisco Lindor. They did it. I wanted one of Scherzer or Verlander. They did it. They brought in Jose Quintana, who most Cardinals fans wanted. They did that too. And it's led to where they're at right now. The White Sox tanked, got to where they thought they had the next process ready in place. This is the pitfalls of it. Sometimes it leads to bad habits and you never get away with those or from those. And now you're still 30 games below 500 late in the season. I'm not saying that everything's great here for the Cardinals. It's not. They've got some big time issues to solve. But the Cardinals issues are more solvable than the vast majority of the other teams that are in their position right now. And unlike some teams in this position, the reason I'm so high in the Cardinals is you have that young core that's developed position player wise. And it's not just one player. Like you look at like the Royals, for example. Yeah, you got Bobby Witt, then what do you got? Like that's the one position player in your core. Cardinals look at all the impo- pitching that they failed to develop. Exactly. Failed. And, and look, I'm not taking away from the Cardinals failing to develop pitching either. But when you look at their position players, you've got Arnado under contract still, you've got Gorman, you've got Newbar, you've got Donovan, all these pieces that we talk about potentially trading. Those guys are a part of that core moving forward, and there's multiple of them. It's not just one, and that's the biggest thing for the St. Louis Cardinals that makes them different from some of these other teams. Somebody on the text line said, okay, guys, but the Yankees have had more injuries than just about anybody in baseball this year. Tell me the best young player that the Cardinal, or that the Yankees have developed. The best young player currently on that roster is who? Volpe? Is, yeah, is that the guy? I mean, he's been bad. Gliber Torres? Torres was the name that came to my mind. Because Torres is a guy that has a 765 OPS this year and is like a below average defensive player. Oh, by the way, he's 26 years old. I would rather have Brendan Donovan, Lars Newpar, Jordan Walker, Nolan Gorman, Mason Wynn. Like we can keep going if you guys want to. The, guy, the guys that the Yankees are building around, they've mostly failed. So, yes, they have had some serious injuries that they've had to deal with this year. And the biggest thing is just they had Aaron Judge go from one of the best seasons we've ever seen in the history of baseball to being hurt. He's still been great this year when he's been healthy. He's just been hurt for most of the season. That's the biggest drop-off for them so far this year. But that's what's went awry for them. The thing that the Cardinals do as well as anybody, developing young position players, the Yankees have been incapable of doing that over the last, really, like seven years. Um, And the same thing is true for the Mets. That's how they in this spot. The problem for the White Sox is that they don't have the right culture there in place. We've heard a lot about that over the course of this season. So uh, every one of these teams has a little something different that's gone wrong for them. The Cardinals' problems are fixable this offseason. You can go out to the market and overhaul this pitching staff the way that the Rangers did a year ago. These other teams, theirs are more systematic. Theirs are more, we are stuck in a place that you cannot get out of. I can't do this anymore. Coming up next, Chris Kerber, the voice of the blues here on 101 ESPN.
We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Last time we talked to Chris Kerber, the voice of the blues, he told us about the trip that he was going to be making overseas to check out all of the European soccer going on right now. He joins us now via the 101 ESPN hotline. Kerbs, we appreciate the time as always, man. How was the trip over to Europe? BK was uh, awesome in uh, in every way. Like, like, what a great experience. We sat uh, in the cottage at Craven Cottage to watch Tim Ream and Fulham, and Tim ended up with a two yellow red card uh, early in the second half and then uh, but got to experience that in an amazing way and then the next day uh, we caught Chelsea and West Ham at London Stadium and it was just a uh, you know just another level of experience on everything so uh, great great sports weekend to kind of learn you know about Horse racing in England and, and Premier League soccer atmosphere. Pretty amazing. Uh, biggest question that I would have, Curbs, is what was the difference between watching a sporting event in person in Europe compared to what you typically expect at one here? Not necessarily better or worse, but just what was different for you? Well, clearly on the soccer thing, uh, it's just about the game itself. Uh, no beer, no alcohol are allowed in the stands. You can drink them on the concourse, so... Everybody rushes to the uh, stands during the during halftime, and then they pound them uh, as many as they can. Uh, but but even in like if you go to City Park, you've got the video you know on both ends of the game, and they will show replay. There's no replays in either stadium that I saw. They had the video boards at at City Park. Uh, didn't have the video boards there at, at Craven Cottage. Or, I'm sorry, they had the video boards at London Stadium, the home of, of West Ham United. Uh, but just for it is truly an event. Like all the bells and whistles and everything else that goes around it that we've gotten used to here in North American sports, uh, that that doesn't seem to really exist. At least not in the two venues that we went to, or frankly, you know, even even in the horse racing you know, that, that we went to at Epsom Downs. So um, that that is the one takeaway that every sporting event we went to over these uh, four days. Uh, it was a big difference in what we're used to over here. Well, that sounds great. And, Curves, let's get to some Blues hockey here. I, FanDuel released the odds for teams and, like, point projections looking at futures. And the teams that kind of sit to me in that same category as the St. Louis Blues, it looks like 90 to 91 is what it's going to take to get into the playoffs, at least the way FanDuel and Vegas is kind of projecting things. What would it have to go right for the Blues to get to that 90-point threshold, in your opinion? Well, first off, I'm a I'm a Han Solo fan, and that quote of "Never tell me the odds, kid." Uh, I like <laughs> because it because it's you know it's fascinating. I look in the the challenge with those projections is really for for the last number of years, you know, you almost needed ninety seven, ninety eight in the Western Conference to get in. Now the East is pushed back and bounced back a little bit, and you're finally getting some gains out of the Arizona Coyotes and a few out of the Anaheim Ducks that's bringing the numbers down a little bit from your top teams in the West. But I I still think every team thinks you're going to need 95 points to get into the playoffs, whether you're in the East or in the West. For that to go right, you're going to need a good, strong goaltending tandem. Uh, And I have zero doubts in our goaltending tandem. I I believe that our goaltending tandem is just fine with with Bennington and Hofer. Uh, I still say that you need the defense thing to sort out a little bit. 
But I just I just believe there's just going to be a better defensive team this were this year than it was last year, you know. And then and then you know who steps up and and, and rounds out you know with with the loss you're losing you've lost a ton of experience with O'Reilly and Barbashev and Tarasenko and especially on the defensive side of the puck with O'Reilly and on Barbashev those guys lost some real key minutes key important penalty killers someone's going to get those minutes and have to do them so. You know, does a does a Torovchenko step in and really make a difference and, and become that solid penalty killer? That you know, what does the return of Sunquist do to that aspect of things? Those are the things that are going to have to play out. And Tanner, I, I, more to your point, I really think the Blues this year are going to have to find a way to win games two to one and three to two to be able to get there. If they can do that, then then they're going to have a chance and be competitive. I, I think in that wild card race. Curbs, we'll get you out of here on this. I know you're a busy man. You got a lot going on today. Uh, really quickly, who's the guy that you're most looking forward to seeing how they look in uh, in camp this year? Yeah, you know what? For for me, um, I'm going to to Jake Neighbors. I, 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 there's several different guys I could look at, but but for me, I just I just see you know I, I've, you guys have heard me say this before that you know I just there's like a Barrett Jackman maturity to the young man. Uh, at a young age, and you know what exactly his role is. It is, is it is it like a Barbashev? Is it uh, up a level? You know, maybe more on that second line. I don't. He's got that ability, I think, to give you top six minutes. But does he settle in as a full time top six or really top nine? That I don't know. But it, it's it's I think a big year for him to kind of fill that gap and really start to define where his role is going to sort out on the team. So I'm excited to look at that storyline going into camp this year. Curbs, we appreciate the time as always, man. Good to hear that everything uh, was was happy and healthy for you as you got back from uh, Europe. And we'll talk with you again next week, my friend. All right, guys. Have an awesome week. Absolutely. Chris, Chris Kerber, Voice of the Blues here on 101 ESPN. Uh, that trip that he took is something that before I die, that's on the bucket list, doing something like that, um, going overseas. A uh, little bit of news in the NFL. This is interesting, T-Bone. I don't think I can ever recall a team getting less criticism because it's kind of worked out for him, honestly, about completely blundering a top three pick that they traded up for and traded significant assets for than the 49ers with Trey Lance. It was just announced that the 49ers are naming Sam Darnold the number two quarterback and that the team is, quote, exploring its options, end quote, with Trey Lance. That's according to NFL.com's Tom Pelissero. Trey Lance might be trying to think of recent memory, like a bigger bust at the quarterback position in the top three. It's him. It's Baker Darnold. You could look at there are some big time misses in the top three of recent NFL drafts. RG three in that Lance though. Like no, because that was injury related. Lance never really played I guess you could argue maybe with him it's a little bit injury related but now it's not now you were passed by Sam Darnold that's that's rough dude year what is it three for him in the NFL and he's getting passed by Sam Darnold who we saw last year lose his job in Carolina to Baker Mayfield for part of the season like that's who buddy that that is an all-time blunder right there yeah I can't think of any other top blunders like that pop into my head but man 
in his one start that he did have was in terrible conditions in Chicago, so you weren't really able to judge him off of that. But that tells you what he's looked like in camp in the preseason to where San Francisco's like, yeah, we've got to go to Sam Darnold, and we're just going to have to look and see if we can move Trey Lance. I, I'm curious to know if there's any market for him because someone that gets drafted number three overall, some teams will look at that and say, well, that is a top-end potential talent at quarterback. But if he's getting surpassed by Sam Donald, Washington should trade for him. And Mr. Irrelevant and Brock Purdy, Washington would make sense. Washington but Sam should trade Howell. for him. I mean, you, BK, you're big on Sam Howell. Yeah, okay. You should give up nothing for him. Don't you're get like me a wrong. Seventh-round pick. Yeah, like a conditional late-round pick. If he starts a bunch of games for you this year, maybe it can become like a third, right? I, I would do it if I'm Washington. Teams that have no hope at the position right now. Those are the teams that should be looking at something like this. Like, if I'm New Orleans, I would trade for him put him behind Derek Carr and let's see what we can get out of him in a few years. Atlanta, I would consider it. Arizona. Hey, sure. Yeah. Behind Kyler. See what it looks like. I mean, you're going to have time to play him. One of those types of the Buccaneers, the Buccaneers should be the team that absolutely considers doing something like this. Like if you have no hope at the position right now and you've got the ability to acquire this guy that sucks apparently and that the 49ers are willing to give up on after giving up a ton of draft capital to be able to acquire him. The expectation should be that he never plays for you in any meaningful way. But he's a former top three pick. And as recently as a couple of years ago, we were all talking about it like, man, just imagine what this guy could be if it works out for him in the NFL. So I would give it a shot if I'm one of those like five teams or so that doesn't have a whole lot going on uh, at the quarterback position. It's really amazing. And it speaks to their team building that they were able to overcome this. They're a legitimate championship contender this year despite the fact that they whiffed that badly at the quarterback position. And it wasn't like they had that number three pick. They traded up for that pick, yeah, yeah. which is incredible to I think mean, about. Think about what they could have had with that selection. It's it's wild. With Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kiley. We'll give you a chance to pair of... Uh, a chance to win a pair of lawn tickets to see Shine Down coming up next, and we'll hit the rewind for you here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Stewart's American Mortgage. Google the Bagel Loan, featuring zero fees and zero closing costs. Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis. I'm Brandon Kylie. Before the end of the show today, we'll give you a chance to win a pair of tickets to see Shine Down with special guest Papa Roach next Sunday night, September 3rd at Hollywood Casino Amphitheater. So keep that text line close to you. 314-399-9646. Text number 101 here in just a minute. We'll win those tickets. But before we go today, uh, T-Bone, I wanted to discuss R- Richie Palacios a little bit. Mm. Uh, this is not a place that I thought we would be at the end of the Cardinal season, but uh, here we are. Palacios having another nice day for the Cardinals today at the plate. He is three for three with two RBIs, including a ground rule double T-bone. Richie Palacios has been really good since coming over to the Cardinals. He had an interesting profile down in the minors, kind of similar the way that the Cardinals got Palacios to the way that some of those outfielders that the Cardinals sent away ended up where they are specifically Adalas Garcia. The guardians just 
he never became the player that they hoped he would be, and they needed the 40-man spot, so they decided to DFA him. Cardinals took advantage. They brought him into their system. Hey, let's find out if there's anything here. Do they have something here? Is there more to this than what we gave it credit for at the time that they were able to acquire Richie Palacios? Maybe. I, I don't want to overreact to his 14 at-bats that he's had so far up here at the big league level, but he does look like a capable hitter. Now, I don't know how well it's going to play because he is kind of a slap left-handed hitter, in my opinion, even though he has a double today. But he does look really good. He looks comfortable in center field. He had a play today that he almost caught sliding in to try and make a catch in the game against Pittsburgh. And at the plate, he looks comfortable. Now, maybe it's just a hot streak. We saw Mercado had a hot streak when he first got up here. But I, I want to see more from him. From this, He's 7 for, I think, 17 since he's gotten up here. I want to see more of that. I want to know what you actually have in Richie Palacios. So do I think they have something? I'm not willing to commit either way yet, but I think it's possible. And I, I want to see him play more. I, I said this earlier. He somewhat reminds me of John Jay. I don't think he's going to be John Jay, but he slap left-handed hitter, and he plays really good center field defense. That kind of reminds me of what John Jay was. I think he has a chance to be a fourth or a fifth outfielder for you. And what makes him more valuable in that role is that he can be a center fielder. That's never going to be the case for Alec Burleson. Now, I think Burleson is a better player than Richie Palacios is, or at least a significantly better hitter. He profiles that way than Richie Palacios. But he comes with, Palacios does, the value of playing in center fields, and that that might open up more opportunities for you to explore this offseason with at least one of Carlson or Tommy Edmond. If you've got that as a failsafe of, hey, we saw it for the last 35, 40 games of the season last year, Palacios can play a capable center field, and he's a guy that we trust to hit like 250 next year. He, he's not going to make a fool of himself at the plate. If you feel like that could be his projection, that guy could be on your 40-man roster for the next couple of years. You send him up and down. He rides that Memphis shuttle, and he's one of the depth outfielders for you in 2024. That'd be a win, given the way that you acquired him as a guy that you plucked off of waivers from another team. That'd be a nice little win for John Mosellock during the season. What I'm going to find fascinating, though, is if their quote-unquote wins this year at the deadline or otherwise are three position players that have a little bit of versatility that play the same positions that they already had a bunch of Palacios Prado, who's down in triple a right now as a middle infielder. And then the same thing is true for Segesi. There is a maybe even more than 50% chance. Those are the three best in season acquisitions that the Cardinals made this year. Hey, the more the mayor here, bring on the middle <laughs> infielders, bring on the Brendan Donovan's for Tanner Hendrickson and great Francis. I'm Brandon Kylie. Now is your chance to win a pair of tickets to see shine down a special guest Papa Roach next Sunday night, September 3rd at Hollywood casino amphitheater. If your texture number 101 at three, one, four, three, nine, 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 six, four, six. And you can tell me who the worst textures in the world are. We talked about this earlier today. Who is the worst texture in the world? What, relation do they have to you if you can get that answer correct in your texture 101 you're going to see shine down we'll talk to you guys tomorrow at 11 a.m the fast lane's coming up next you've been listening to the bk and ferrario podcast presented by dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 espn